since it began. Who have you podcasted? You wouldn't be alive now if you hadn't podcasted somebody. <laughs> I'm really struggling with the accents. That's, this series. that's fine. No, that was good. That was fine. That was that was good. What's what's the word being substituted there? Killed. 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 Right. Murdered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very similar. Almost uh, the same word. Killed and podcasted. Right. The two worst things you can do to somebody. Murder them or podcast them. I think that's the Sixth Amendment. Yeah. Thou shalt not podcast. Right. Yeah, exactly. Sixth Amendment. What am I Sixth Commandment. What Jesus I Christ. I okay. answered the right thing with you saying the wrong thing, and then I thought I had done the wrong thing because you had said oh the wrong God, thing. Oh, my God. That was me. That was all me. All killer right. start. Killer, killer start. Hello. 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 Hi. Hi. This is Blank Check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. I'm David. It's a podcast about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their careers and then are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion products they want and sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they bounce baby sometimes they get infected sometimes the checks get infected with rage yes sometimes the checks are enraged yes the ultimate virus uh this is a mini series on the films of danny boyle oh danny boyle the pipes the pipes are calling it is called train spodcasting that's right today we're talking about his comeback film yeah without a doubt the distinct beginning of his second phase as a filmmaker. Uh, it's called 28 Days Later. Dot, dot, dot. Uh, yeah, although it, it, the, it's not referred to. There's no dot, dot, dot on like the IMDb. It's, but it is on screen. If you're going yes. by the Mike D'Angelo rules of whatever the title is on screen, that is the title. Well, I think this is an important thing to ask because is this... The second dot 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 movie we've covered or not? I don't know. Uh, our guest should weigh in. I think I'm not sure how you feel about the ellipsis in a title. Do you think the title is what's on the poster or what is on screen? What's on the poster? Yeah, I I'm with you. Like because no offense to Mike D'Angelo, but he'll do that thing where he like he won't call the Irishman the Irishman. He calls it like. I heard you paint houses because the, the title of the Irishman never appears on screen. And sometimes I'm sort of like, look, don't be a stickler. It's okay. Your, your classic, uh, uh, Ghostbusters answer the call. Oh, a sure. title that right. only appears on screen or, or Shane Black's Iron Man three T H R E E spelled out. Right. Yes. Right. Uh, David is taking off his sweatshirt to show off his t-shirt and David, what's on your t-shirt there? This is from 2016, right? Mm. This is the original, right? A much David? better time. Um, no, it was actually a pretty stressful time. If you Ghostbusters <laughs> answer the call was in theaters. Everyone was chill about it. Um, and uh, this is from our our guests' podcast, Election Profit Makers, which in 2016 was sort of a limited podcast. You know, you if you remember, I mean, you know, I and do this remember. Was kind of, this was kind of our reward at the end of it. You know, we had unfortunately gotten Donald Trump, but we did get a cool t-shirt about wave riding. That's right. Um, yeah. Anyway, so that's what I'm wearing today. It's, it's, it's warm. It's toasty. Pretty, pretty nice in New York today, so I don't, I don't need a sweater. Well, that's a bit of a humble brag. Uh, David Reese, uh, thank you for coming back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's nice to be back. Your third appearance. Oh, it's nice to have you. First two appearances, yeah. AI Spirited Away. Uh, two of our favorite movies ever covered on the show. That's good. Yeah, they were both really good movies, really interesting movies. 
And I feel like for many people, two of their favorite episodes, I, I hear them cited so often, you are very selective. Every time we've asked you to do the show, you basically throw out a movie and say, if you ever cover this, I'll do it. Really? That makes me sound like such a deep, such an asshole. Sorry. You're not an asshole. You're, 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 you're special. I'm just, my fear is that if it's, if it's not a movie that I don't have some kind of investment and in, I just won't have anything to say about it. Like you don't feel strongly about Clifford. Clifford, the big red dog. What? No, no. Whoa, the, the, Mar the, the Martin the one Short. That Tom is Sharpling is obsessed child. with where a, Correct, a yes. boy is a man or someone. Yes. Yeah, I've, <laughs> yeah. I've never seen it. I don't know it. Okay. Ben Hosley yeah. also obsessed with it. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty fucked up. You need to watch. Is it that a grown man is a boy or that a grown man thinks he's a boy? I mean, is it's a boy being. Neither. Yeah. A boy is being played by a man, but yes. there's no okay. acknowgement of it. It's like, purely right. a theatrical right. conceit. Within right. the text okay. of the film itself, he is a normal boy, except is he all that normal? In some ways you could say he's possessed or he's like a, a zombie, if you will, uh, to, 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 to he's a, he's infected dinosaur by land. <laughs> right. But it's not like big where the plot of big is no. there's a boy running wild in this man's body. No, there's no, nothing right. in the plot that explains why he is played by a man in his 40s. Oh, that is kind of wild. It's a strange... I think you would find it unsettling. I'm not sure... I don't know where you fall on Martin Short generally. I don't know. I haven't seen him in that many things, actually. I liked um, what I saw of Only Murders in the Building, but I don't know if I've ever seen him in a movie. It's kind of like freebasing Martin Short. Like, okay. it's like the most... <laughs> yes. uh -huh. It's the most unconstrained he is. Pure and that's, short. that's 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 good in a way. You're like, yeah, sure. wow, this guy is totally, you know, doing what he wants to do. But in another way, you're like, well, maybe sometimes people need guardrails and those things are okay. Is he the one who would put his hair up in a huge point and then squirm around in an armchair? I think you're combining two things. Martin maybe. Short characters. Primetime I mean, Glick squirms around in an armchair and then Ed Grimley. Had yeah, I'm thinking of Ed Grimley. Is that Martin Short? Yes. And didn't he have a hair point, like a unicorn yep. point? No, no, no that was the hair right. point. Yes. And tucked in shirt, high-waisted pants. The squirming around in the armchair, I feel that's more Jiminy Glick. His, okay. Uh, Glick. His, yeah. um, you know, how do you describe him? Marant, imbecile, you know, celebrity interviewer character. Got it. Okay. But no, I, the thing is, we have some guests who are like, yeah, you're doing some reheated trash from the 90s. Like, <laughs> I'd love to swing in and chat about it. And the, you, right. I feel like you, you get energized by less pop culture. But when you are energized, it's, it's very profound. And so that's, that's when we like to, you know, to talk to you. That's the thing. We, we like when there is a, a, a convergence uh, and this was a rare example where there were like two things you were interested in doing back to back. We won't say what the other one is because it's a future miniseries not announced. Oh, okay. Yeah. But we, you came back and sort of said like, this is actually one of the films I have the strongest opinions on. The film we're talking about today, 28 Days Later. Yeah, it has a very unique, it has a very unique and I think almost unrepeatable place in my life as a movie watcher in that I don't think I've ever seen another movie at, at the time of its release that clicked with me more. Wow. And for reasons we can get into. Very interesting to me.
David was poking you on this right before we started recording, but you were saying that zombie movie is perhaps your favorite genre in theory, but also the genre with the widest convergence of movies you love versus movies you hate. Well, I think if you're a, you know, like any aficionado, if you truly love a genre or a type of work or a type of food or whatever, you be, you, that means that you're only that much more particular about the examples that cross your palate, so to speak. And I think for years, I've always really responded to zombie movies for a number of reasons, some of which are like, I think they kind of confirm my my political sensibility and my nihilistic prejudices. I also have had over the course of my life a recurring nightmare about zombies. And so I think there must be something on a deep, deep psychological level about zombies that is uncanny and yet fulfilling and comforting. Do you know what your first zombie movie was? Like what was your entree to the genre? Well, we'll have to draw a distinction between zombie movies and post-apocalyptic movies because there's a lot of overlap in both of them. But I have a feeling that the first... So in preparation for this episode, because I was so stoked to talk about zombies, I rewatched a lot of zombie movies. I think I watched nine zombie movies in the past. Nine! Wow. One a night. One a night. I want the list. If I want got the lineup. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell, I'll, yeah, I'll, I wrote them down in chronological order for the benefit right. of your listeners. Here we go. Okay. Night of the Living Dead, 1968. Classic. I'm going to pause only to say that I, I'm st- I was stunned to realize this, but I still think that is the best zombie movie ever made. Wow. It's so uncanny, and it is so um, close to the recurring nightmares that I have had over the course of my life about people just standing outside my house. We're going to dig more into this nightmare, by the way. Yeah, yeah, okay. You know. Yeah. But it feels incredibly real in a way that a lot of them can't because a lot of them are borrowing from that movie yeah. to this it's, day. It's one of those lightning in a bottle movies, too, where it's there there are just like accidents that lend it this weird alchemy that makes it bigger than it it ever could be intentionally. As much as it's a, a film made by incredibly intelligent, skilled people. No, totally, totally. And the and the final, you know, that f- the sequence of photographs at the end of it with the meat hooks is still absolutely dread-inducing and just, like, totally masterful. Um, so I started with that one. I started back at the Wellspring, Night of the yep. Living Dead. Then I watched George Romero's movie from 1973 called The Crazies. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Which is a close analog to 28 Days Later, which I think I had seen maybe in middle school. You know, a lot of these movies made the slumber party circuit back in my youth on VHS cassette or on HBO or whatever, Cinemax. And I will say that Revisiting the Crazies, that movie is a damn masterpiece. That movie is so much better than the next movie I watched from 1978, which is widely considered the best zombie movie ever made, which is Romero's Dawn of the Dead. Uh, uh, certainly a classic which is definitely a classic and you can see you can see so much of the source code of contemporary zombie iconography at least up until movies like 28 days later when all that stuff got subverted and ramped up but i would say dawn of the dead has not aged well that is like a a blinding hot take not that i'm disagreeing i have not seen dawn of the dead in a long time but i do i do love it i do also love the crazies the crazies is good i saw dawn of the dead again recently i saw it 
right around last Halloween, um, they... Do you know the weird saga of the 3D remaster of this movie? The original one from the 70s, they turned it into 3D? Yeah, I'm going to give the shortest version of this story. But, like, you know, the Romero franchise is famous for the rights all being fucked up and Romero never retaining any of them, and they're all being split between different weird money people. Night of the Living Dead going to public domain because he forgot to copyright the new title versus the old title, whatever. One of these guys who, through some changing of hands, ended up with the rights to the original Dawn of the Dead, but only Dawn. In like 2012, when there were the 3D re-releases of like Titanic and Lion King and Jurassic Park and they were doing okay, was like, great, that's what I'll do. That's how I'll make my money. I'll convert this to 3D and spent like $6 million converting it to 3D. And by the time it was done, the 3D fad had just like completely collapsed. Oh my God. And for the last 10 years, you can't really easily rent Dawn of the Dead. It's not in print in any home media. There are like very few legal ways, if any, to watch it in the United States because this guy controls the rights. And he's basically like, I'm not going to let anyone see this until I can make back my money on the 3D re-release. I just found it on YouTube. Someone had posted it on YouTube. It's on YouTube, yes. And, and I just not watched streaming, it on YouTube. Yeah. Not streaming on any official service right now, but yeah. Yes, you cannot watch it legally. But he finally got some like two-night-only release nationwide of the 3D thing with very little advertising last Halloween. I went to see it. I will say, the 3D work on it was good. He clearly uh, paid a lot of money on it. Uh, but seeing that movie in a theater again, it was better than I remembered it being. Oh, interesting. Maybe I'm yeah. wrong. I don't know. I just You're not wrong. It's just your opinion. Yeah, that's true. It's just my opinion. Um, all right. The next one I watched was and I have I have such a hazy memory of watching this at a slumber party that David, this might be my first exposure to zombie movies. And this one I feel like has aged very well and is a lot of fun. And that is Return of the Living Dead. Mm. When the punk rockers go into the cemetery to make off, make out and take off their shirts and then um, they get, you know, hornswoggled by these zombies. Yeah, crazy Dan O'Bannon movie with great, you know, practical effects and all that. It's a lot of fun. And another child of the weird right splits of the Romero movies. Right. This guy had the rights to Of the Living Dead. He Correct. retained the rights to that title formulation. Right. So it's like an alternate sequel, essentially, to the first Romero movie. And this was the movie, apparently, that established the trope that zombies are interested in eating brains mm. because there's one yes. slimy black zombie that's a great costume. Tarman? We're we talking Tarman? Yeah, Tarman. Yeah. I wasn't yes. sure if, if you would know him by his name, but his name I, is I'm Tar very Man. familiar with his work. Yes. Yeah. And he just says brains. Before then, they just would eat your flesh, just mm. any, any part of your flesh. Right. But, uh, this guy yeah. goes for brains. Right. Which is also fatty, not a lot of protein. Right. Brains. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then I watched a movie that came out 17 years later, which is 28 Days Later. Mm. Sure. And you know what? I might have actually watched 28 Days Later. I think I think watching it again for this podcast might might have pushed it over the the line and this might now be the movie I have watched more than any other movie. Wow. Oh, I think I have seen this movie six times. Wow. And I think that's a new personal record for me. So I've really watched this movie a lot. Yeah. Uh, so I watched 28 days later 
And then I watched a Spanish language zombie movie that I'd never seen, but I'd always been on my radar called Rec or mm-hmm. REC Record. That movie is terrific. Yes. That movie, I agree, was terrific. I was hooting and hollering. It was uh, remade in America as Quarantine. Quarantine. Right. Yes. Okay. Oh, right. Uh, which okay. is okay. But Rec yeah. is really fun. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Then I watched the Brad Pitt vehicle, World War Z. Oh, sure. Yep. Maybe for the third time, which I think the thing that recommends World War Z is just some colossal set pieces that only a big budget zombie movie can do. Interesting. Yeah. I've always sort of avoided that movie, but you're making. Have you never seen it? No, and that's kind of a good argument. Is ju- like I was kind of against the idea of a zombie movie being that huge, but I hear what you're saying of like, except this is the one time a zombie right. movie could depict some of these things. This is the PG thirteen, you know, hundred and fifty million dollar zombie movie. It's right. the you know, it's the exception to that sort of formula. I that in my opinion, it's sort of half a good movie. Like there's a lot of, there is, there are some good set pieces in it. I remember it being a little all over the place. It sort of jumps around. Oh, well, he travels around the world. It's just him going from one location to the plot is like, we have to go find this scientist in Burma. And they show up in Burma and they're like, that scientist died two days ago. The only scientist <laughs> left is Israel. Well, I guess we have to find a plane and go to Israel. Like he winds up in um, Wales or something. or yeah. Winds up in either Scotland or Wales. You know, it is Wales. Right. You're right. Yeah. Peter yeah. Capaldi is there. Yeah. That. He's one of the scientists at the lab. Yeah. Um, but it's got some stuff. It's got some good moments. And it has, um, I think, the... I think the the most so twenty eight days later, its great innovation was fast zombies, right? Yes. Zombies just booking. Yes. And then I think World War Z's innovation was zombie piles or mm. moving mountains of zombies. Right. They just sort they, of like swarm and yeah, it's a like it's very ant like. Yes. It's very yes. insect like. Right. 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 And it's 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 fine. It's whatever. Um, then I watched I think for the second or third time. Train to Busan, which feels like the most recent, yes. widely recognized classic of the genre. Yeah. Which is which is good. That's Zombies on a Train, of course. And then I watched a movie that I had never heard of until I decided to do this zombie research in anticipation of this episode. This is a zombie movie with a great premise, but unfortunately a, an execution that I didn't like. And it's a mm. Canadian zombie movie called Blood Quantum. Have you ever heard of this movie? No. No, From it was 2019. At, yeah, it was at TIFF a few years ago, and it was one of those TIFF sort of midnight movies that a few people were like, yeah, you know, there's something to that one. And then it became kind of like a shutter hit. Right, um, yeah. I've never seen it. Uh, it's set in the 80s, right? It's got this kind of like vintage feel. It's set in 1981 in Canada on the, I think it's called the Red Creek Reservation. And the premise is that there's a zombie outbreak and all the First Nations peoples are immune to it. But all the white Canadians are, are, can fall victim to becoming zombies. So they obviously are all desperate to get into the compound that the tribe has built. It's kind of a cool premise. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's a good, it's a good, like, inversion of history 101 and it's a funny premise there's a lot of obviously like satirical possibilities there and really interesting you know psychological and political stuff to deal with but there's something about the way it's shot it felt slack or diffuse in a way that i think is the exact opposite of what i want in out of my zombie movies Hmm. i will say this in your list that you've just provided there's this big jump between return of the living dead which is like 85 and 28 Days Later, which is 2002, you know, right. depending on what country you lived in. 
So I was sort of like, hey, is there really nothing in between? And obviously there were zombie movies in between, but it is true that there really wasn't like a sort of definitive hit zombie movie in they that long period. went out of fashion, yeah. I think. You have to give this movie credit as the revival point. Because Shaun of the Dead, obviously, which is sort of this big Romero homage, that's a couple yeah. years later. Right. And that's more of like the classic zombie movie. The zombies are stumbling around or whatever. This movie felt like a really like shocking, you know, update. And the fast zombie thing felt it was it was new. It was Injection of Lifeblood. The Dawn of the Dead remake uses that. Then you get Romero making zombie movies again. That obviously leads to the Walking Dead comic and then the show. Like this is World War Z. This is the the revival point, really. Uh, David, do you like this sort of later Romero trilogy? His weird land, like land diary, of the dead and yeah, videotapes of the dead or whatever. <laughs> yeah, videotapes yeah, of the dead. <laughs> land of the dead. I only watched once, and I was kind of intrigued to revisit it because that's the one where like everyone is just living with zombies, right? And all the yeah. rich people are up at the top of a tower, and it's like Edward Hopper and John Leguizamo and. Dennis Hopper. It would be interesting if it was Edward. Yeah, that'd be yeah. good. The great painter, um, American realist painter Edward up there. Hopper. I mean, he'd have a lot of material. Yeah. Zombie Edward Hopper has come back to update all his iconic paintings. Uh, Land I owe a rewatch. I only saw it when it came out in theaters. Well, I remember I the, was... the hype when it came out was so yes. profound. And then people yes. were like, huh, like it's sort of heavy on the sociopolitical stuff and light on the horror. Yeah. Not like light, light, but like, you know, it's not, it's not this sort of whatever people wanted, super intense. It's kind of like that Star Wars movie where they just sit in the Senate and argue about the Iraq war. Yes, exactly. The Revenge of the Sith. Uh, <laughs> you know the one I'm talking about where there's just like a lot of council meetings and... Oh, oh yes. David. Oh, yeah, we covered Cornell it. Cornell yeah. West is in it, I think. Was Cornell West in a Star no, Wars Cornel movie West and a Matrix, Matrix movie? Cornell West the Matrix sequels, yes. But, but wasn't he also in one of the Star Wars movies? I, I don't put it I past do not think him, so. but I don't think so. Yeah. Okay. But he's definitely a government minister in the Matrix movies, right? He he yes. is on the like Council of Elders in the Matrix right, okay. sequels. He has a big harmonica around his neck, and he's one of the various people being like, "But Morpheus, can you really chart a path through the?" You know, like there a lot a lot of chat. How long is this going to take? Two more movies? <laughs> oh my god, those Matrix um, movies! But you talk about the gap. Sims, uh, like what happens in between Return of the Living Dead, which feels like the newest country the last new contribution of zombie ideas until 28 days later right in sort of yeah. a seismic way the zombie movies that exist in between those two points are return of the living dead sequels night of the living dead yeah. remake yeah you know like it's a lot of staying in the zone of what has already been established and and uh, day of the dead like it's like everyone's sort of keeping the course of what has already been laid out. And then a lot of, you know, obviously like lower tier. Th that's the thing. I think it becomes a really reliable straight to video kind of thing. It becomes like a C a genre instead of even yeah. a B genre anymore. And the B genre examples are sequels and remakes of what has already been done. Although I will say it is funny that the list of zombie movies uh, list that I'm looking on does include Weekend at Bernie's 2, but I mean, that's not true. Weekend at Bernie's. Well, hmm. no, because David, in the first Weekend at Bernie's, Bernie is dead and they puppeteer uh -huh. the body. In the second Weekend at Bernie's, his dead body is possessed and walks on its own. Right. Is what? that right? He got voodooed. You guys have never yes. seen uh -huh. it? That's no, sick. I'm not. 
Okay, I have not seen Wicked and the Bernie's. The first Wicked at Bernie's Wait. is our boss died. We have to. Uh, right, we gotta pretend he's alive. Keep up appearances. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Right. right, 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 right. And it's like, how so do he's you doing do a lot that of like, hey, movie? how you doing? Right, like yeah, exactly. That. You got it, David. They're yeah. marionetting it. <laughs> yes. The second movie is Bernie gets voodooed, and he is physically as a dead body walking like a zombie towards a point where there is buried treasure. And they have to chase this dead body to find where the dead buried treasure is. Whoa. Now, you might be wondering, does he uh, hook up with somebody, Bernie? He does. Uh-huh. You can't. You don't have that in zombie movies. No. Not usually. No, that is, that is rare. I'm kind of surprised that Weekend at Bernie's 2 hasn't been a Ben's choice. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's, there's the... Um, uh, the the Lucio Fulci movie Zombie Two. Have you ever seen that sure. one? Never seen. No, I've never. That seen one's sort that of a, one, yeah. a Euro Euro zombie classic. Zombie that's Holocaust. That's from like the seventies too. Yeah, Zombie yeah. Holocaust. It is a funny genre. So why does it speak to you, David? Why you know why does the uh... well you know again in doing my prayerful consideration of zombies in anticipation of this episode, I I'll start by saying this: I am worried now that zombie movies are inherently reactionary. Mm. And I don't consider myself a reactionary, but there's, I think one of the pleasures of zombie movies and it's, and, and you see it most overtly in the Zack Snyder remake of Dawn of the Dead is the zombie movie creates the permission structure where you can take a gun and just shoot people all day long. And you don't right. have to, you don't have to have a guilty conscience because they are actually not people anymore. Right. You're, if anything, you're saving them. You're, it's a moral you're right. thing to do. Right. Yeah. Right. It's the ultimate othering of formal, formally human beings. Right. What were yes. formally human beings? And of course, there's all the prepper stuff that comes. The prepper fantasies of let's wall ourselves inside this compound and eat all this canned corn and and you know make solar panels and and live forever. We don't need anybody else. Right, it's become like an internet subgenre. People being like, "Here's how I would prepare for the zombie apocalypse." <laughs> right, exactly. Like, Here's some blueprints. Here's the shopping list. Like, yeah, all that. And obviously, it, in a way, that stuff is really fun and exciting because then you have the pleasure of being like, "Why aren't these idiots always just wrapping phone books around their forearms to protect themselves from the zombies? <laughs> Why aren't these people just putting on football helmets? For God's sake, the first thing I would do is just find a football uniform and put it on. Yeah. I'd have shoulder Hit pads and knee pads. These zombies wouldn't be able to do shit to me. It's right. weird how low zombie movies are on that kind of like ad hoc armor. I think that's because it's hard to identify with protagonists whose bodies are completely bulky and right. obscured. Although mm -hmm. people do love football, which is crazy because yep. those people are always, you know, suited up. It's always been the argument for why it's harder to be famous as a football player because you are not seen. Because nobody can and see you. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the only right. people who are really seen are quarterbacks because they get they so the much attention right. and they're sitting on the, you know, sideline a lot and they're looking very serious and they're, you know, but like, that's why it's tougher in a way to be a football player because you're kind of this anonymous, you know, soldier in this giant squadron. Yeah. So... When I was young and really getting into zombie movies, the prepping stuff did not yet have the sort of like right wing militia sure. QAnon associations that it has now in 2023. But putting aside the political, the political associations with zombie movies, I think for me, the zombie movie speaks to this suspicion I've always had, which is like, 
we're all just like one inch away from going completely feral. Like, right. Like with this being a human and living in a society that functions is a very precarious situation that is the result of millennia of collective achievement and innovation. And it could really come, it could really come apart at the seams at any moment. And that might be me showing a sort of adolescent know-it-all performative nihilism. But I do think that certain events in the last few years have kind of like reassured me that like, yeah, you were right. It doesn't take up? much. Wait, wait, yeah. is there it something going on much. with civilization? <laughs> Are things okay? It, totally. And the reason that 28 Days Later really clicked with me on a really deep level that very few movies ever have. Is, so I don't know if you got, I, I'm older than you guys. When when 28 Days Later came out in the United States, it was 2003. I think it came out in the summer of 2003. Yep, late June 2003. The United States had invaded Iraq in the spring of 2003, in mid-March. And I was doing an online political cartoon at the time about the war on terror that was being waged by George W. Bush on behalf of all civilized society. Yes, get your war on. Exactly. Get your war on was the name of the comic strip. And I was... Um, you know, reading a lot of newspapers and also reading a lot of books. And I had read two books shortly before I saw this movie in the movie theater. And the movie really spoke. It felt like it was in conversation with these books. The first book was the Samantha Power book called A Problem from Hell, which is about genocide and America's response or lack of response to genocide in the 20th century. And specifically about how the entire concept of genocide was created by this guy named Raphael Lemkin because he needed to name, he needed, there had never been a name for the crime of trying to eradicate an entire population or an entire culture. And then the other book is a, a tiny book by Chris Hedges, who's, who was a former war correspondent called War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. And this book had a real impact on me because as a former war correspondent, Chris Hedges was writing about how exhilarating and addictive war can be. In spite of the violence and in spite of the trauma, it obviously can create bonds of uh, patriotism among a population because now you're united in fighting someone else. Well, this is also that point in time where we're all reacting from this like unspeakable tragedy that felt like- 9-11, yeah. Yes, I'll, I'll say it, I'll say it. 9-11, this yep. awful tragedy, and then you're, like, so quickly shifting to our most august, beloved, trusted voices in television news standing in front of tanks saying, like, this is an awesome killing machine. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you could feel like, you, like, if you were opposed to the idea of a never-ending war on terror, and if you were opposed to invading and occupying Iraq while Afghanistan was still just, like, a total fucking shit show— you could feel really lonely and crazy because I, there, I, yeah. there wasn't much in pop culture or even on the news that reflected that sensibility of skepticism and like, can we, can we just like put a pump the brakes just a little before we go invade a second country in two years? You know, I remember uh, Letterman having Bill O'Reilly on his show and he would have him on so they could get antagonistic and fight about everything. And Letterman would try to get some good blows in on him. Bill O'Reilly came out with like a fucking gladiator helmet and a plastic sword and shield and was doing the like, here we go kind of thing. Right. Yeah. But like Letterman was really kind of drilling in 
to him on like, why is this war necessary? Like, what is this war exactly? Why are we doing this war in this country at this scale? Like all this sort of stuff. Now. Like, right. Right now. It, yeah. And just that weird sense with the Iraq war where like a year out, you were like, oh, wait, they want to do that? And they're just kind of going to do it? Like, they're just, yeah. And they were just kind of slowly building like blocks up being like, yeah, we're probably going to do it. You know, like, and you were just sort of like, but why? And they were like, I don't know. We probably should. Right. Yeah. And you're like, I, I don't, uh, anyway. It's been a while since we've like redone the kitchen. Um, the, but, but, uh, O'Reilly was, you know, defending it from reactionary, uh, sort of whatever. Um, patriotic, jingoistic. We were hurt. We need to, we can't stand idly by. They're attacking right. our values, what we represent as a country or whatever. And Letterman, I thought, put it so well because he was so clumsy in how he was going about it in a way, accidentally, where he was like, look, I know nothing about politics. I'm an idiot. I don't understand this stuff. I do relate to the basic idea of what you're saying, where when 9-11 happened, it felt like such a moral wrong and it hurt so much that it felt like there has to be something we do in response to this. And yeah. it just feels like you have taken advantage of that. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, the reason we invaded Iraq so soon after 9-11 is they were worried people would stop being emo like those, those emotions would dissipate. Yeah. You know, the anger and the hurt and would uh, disappear, and then it would be hard to justify an invasion that made no fucking sense and <laughs> cost a lot of money. <laughs> and, and killed many, many, many And people. also killed over 100 yes. Iraqis. But uh, uh, the yeah, good news sure. was it yeah. ended really quickly, right? I'm checking my notes here. It was right. over yeah. within a... What, what, it was what? a cakewalk, yeah. It is... I mean, look, I was 17 years old when we invaded Iraq. I lived in England. I was American. I was uh just you know i was against the war um i was also 17 years old you know i was i had i had what i had at my disposal intellectually but um there was this sort of like weird insane burden of being the american especially in england because britain had gone into the war and no one in britain liked that thank like, you tony blair very little yeah yeah like there was very little excitement in Britain about the Iraq war, uh, really. And I, this is, I was not living in some bubble. I mean, I think most people know that. And then I just felt this kind of like embarrassment and sort of like lack, you know, like defensiveness, but also this inability to really kind of explain my country to people. And I don't know, it was a very, it was a very unsettling time. Uh, good, 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 good. Yeah. Good times. Yeah. Anyway, carry no, on. Bad, yeah. bad, David, bad. Oh, times. sorry. You're right. You're right. You're right. So all, you know, all this stuff was very much on my mind as a political cartoonist and going, you know, you're going to all these massive anti-war protests in the back of your head. You know, it doesn't make a, it's not going to make a damn difference because they've already got all the tanks and shit on the border ready to go, you know. But this Chris Hedges book is a, it's a, it's a short book. Like you can read it in like a day or two. And because it's written from the perspective of someone who was for a while addicted to being a war correspondent which is really what that's like like my mom had friends who were war correspondents they were it was like kind of thing like why would you go back there and they're like i love it you know i fucking love it it's a apparently a crazy rush right yeah. in the service you know you're covering something that's usually the 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 last worst option to actual war fighting right and killing mm -hmm. and he also talks a lot about how 
and and Samantha Power talks about this in her book. And this is an, this is a this is obviously a huge part of the twist in Twenty Eight Days Later is how often sex and rape is used as a weapon of war. You can think of examples like the Rwandan genocide, where the stories are just like fifty thousand times more horrific than anything you would ever see in a zombie movie. Right. So I was thinking about all this stuff and feeling a little crazy, and then. And this is really going to put it in, this is really going to bring you back to that era. Okay. I was on the phone with one of the few people who seemed willing to go on like Fox News and MSNBC and get yelled at for being skeptical of the war. And that was the American comedian Janine Garofalo. Yep. Yeah. She really was an icon of the early 2000s in well, a different way. She was like way. the only one who would do it. Like everyone else was either too scared to go on TV or just wanted the war to happen. And she was, you know, very ardently skeptical and willing to be like the um, the abuse i'm going to suffer on this news broadcast that's the price i'll pay to let people know that there are there are people out there who think this might be a bad idea yeah and if people want to discuss this uh abstract idea of cancel culture uh she had a sitcom on abc that had been filmed and she starts speaking out against the war on uh, news shows and they were just like oh we're never going to air this and they just put it on a shelf and it has still never been seen. And her career like immediately changed. She stopped being yeah. someone hireable. Right. In any public sphere outside of her doing her own stand-up. In the 90s, she was an iconic character actress who is in one billion movies as yes. like friends and sidekicks. <laughs> right, and yeah, yeah. Sometimes romantic interest and all that. And then like in the 2000s, it was like, well, she's like on Air America or whatever. And like you say, and on like, you know, cable news as this like feisty person who will dare actually be like, Oh, I actually don't like George W. Bush or whatever, you know, like anyway, um, that's so funny. Anyway, you were talking, wait, did you say you were talking to Janine Garofalo? Yeah. Because speaking of air America, they were starting air America and she had called me about some air America. We, Cause we had been on panels together. Like we had met each other when we would go to like a panel and be on like satire in the age of terror. Like I did a hundred of those types of panels when I was a political cartoonist, you right, know? Right. Right. Me, Janine Garofalo, Art Spiegelman, and then like somebody else, you know. So Janine had called me to talk about something about Air America, I think. And she said, oh, by the way, I saw this amazing movie. You've got to see it. It's called 28 Days Later. It's a zombie movie. And my ears completely perked up like, zombie movies? Why, that's my favorite genre of movie, although I've never seen one that's intellectually sophisticated enough to satisfy my fancy pants affect. <laughs> She said, you've got to see this movie. It's about what we're living through. It's about the Iraq war. People get infected with rage and go crazy. I was like, okay, I'll check it out. So sure enough, I went to go see it in the movie theater. And for a number of reasons, from first, the fact that they shot it on a fucking fax machine. It just looks so... <laughs> Like so on a, on grimy. A boy. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it really is like... It's so DIY, you know? It's like, what if Operation Ivy made a zombie movie? It, it doesn't and, even look like a Game Boy camera. It looks like what the Game Boy printer would print out from the Game Boy camera. Yeah, absolutely. Right. It yeah. just looked so weird. And and there were so many aesthetic choices, like the fact that the soundtrack is all just like super fuzzed out post-rock guitar soundtrack. Oh, yeah. And then the political subtext that I brought to the movie, probably because my, my head was swimming with these books by Samantha Power and Chris Hedges, where 
And this happens a lot in zombie movies where the people who you think are going to keep you safe are actually as much of a threat as the zombies. Like, that's one of the big lessons that we can learn from zombie movies. It's almost like, you know, humanity, right, is the real monster. Right, Right. exactly. There might not be that much separating us between us and the undead. But the fact that it was an explicitly military compound and the first thing they wanted to do basically was start raping the female protagonist and breeding a new society. It was like, oh, right, because they're all jazzed up with war. And there's this Eros Thanatos dynamic that that you see so often in war fighting where you want to kill you kill people and then you're all your adrenaline's going crazy and then you just want to rape people. Like there were so many things in this. This is not my favorite movie. It's probably not even my favorite zombie movie. But like I said, I don't think I've ever had a, a, an experience in a movie theater where the basically the whole time I'm just sitting there being like, yep, yep. And that's right on the head. And you nailed that too. Just everything about it. It just really, really clicked for me. And I don't even like Danny Boyle movies that much. Like, oh, sure you do. He's your favorite. I like Sunshine a lot until the last five or 10 minutes. That's a great one with also a great soundtrack. But like Train Spotting, I don't know. I feel like the Train Spotting boys are just not your boys. Well, there's, I just, I only saw it once and my, and I know my brother really likes train spotting. He's a little bit younger than me. I just remember, and this is actually a bone I have to pick with certain comedic zombie movies that can go unnamed at the uh-huh. risk of alienating some of your listeners. Uh-huh. Yeah, I remember there being some character in train spotting with a big goofy mustache. Who's like incredibly violent. Yes. Begbie. Begbie. Is his name. Okay. Yeah. Right. And sometimes it felt like that was played for, I, I'm at the age now, I can't watch violence be funny. Mm-hmm. It's just something switched in my head some years ago. All those bad boy British movies that came out around the time of train spotting, people just beating the shit out of each other. And it's so shocking and tacky and How gauche. do you put it again, David? Uh, what, that someone in a pork pie hat punches someone and says lovely jubbly? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that kind of stuff. There's something about, (laughs) I can't watch people. You love that quote of mine, Griffin. It's funny. (laughs) David, I know what you mean. Are you, look, can we talk about Shaun of the Dead for just a second? A movie that people don't like. I'll give you 30 30 seconds of unreserved bile. I, I don't dislike Shaun of the Dead. I think it's quite well done. I totally get why it had such an outsized impact but i remember feeling the way you're describing right now and i think i've talked about this before very strongly where when it made the pivot to sort of like despairing intense violence i was like i i just don't think i can enjoy this like it and still be laughing and like going like oh sean you know you're so silly like i have always struggled with the tonal shift in that movie I just remember the scene where they're where they're just beating the shit out of everybody in the pub listening to Queens Don't Stop listening Me Now. And Queen, I was like, yes. I was like, I can't. I mean, it's a master. Those guys always make these masterful movies that are just like complete jewel boxes. And it shows like absolute ma- mastery of genre and parody and everything. And the opening of Shaun of the Dead is just like so incredible where they play with the tropes of things are slowly askew. Something's off and the guy doesn't even like all this stuff is incredible filmmaking. But when it comes to people beating beating and i know they're zombies but they're people like zombies are people that's the fucked up thing that people have to wrap their head around like it's what's so distressing about that yeah, yeah exactly they're not and aliens that, they're not monsters and the they're same not way. a different species yeah. right right i i know i know they're arguably classified somewhat more as vampires than zombies 
Do you have uh, uh, opinions on I Am Legend, Last Man on Earth, Omega Man? Because I feel like that's... None of the adaptations have totally gotten this right, although I do like all three of those movies on different levels. But that's the really interesting idea in that story, is the realization from this guy at the end of, like, I'm fighting a species that now is its own functional civilization. I'm trying to eradicate them, but, like, I I am the legend now. I am the sort of odd mythological creature. They figure out a way to work that is functional for them. I like Omega Man and I Am Legend. I think those are both pretty good movies. But like any post-apocalyptic movie or even some zombie movies, I think they're at their best when it's just like Will Smith walking around looking for people and then there's a deer in Times Square. Well, just that's that, the best shit of Will Smith's career. Yeah. Yeah. It is, well, but it's also, it's the best shit of this movie. It's always, made, well, that's what I think anyway. It's always yeah. to me the most profound special effect, especially when it's a movie like this that's actually achieving it practically. Right. Of just the eeriness of an empty city uh, and then maybe, yes, some sort of weird incongruity like a deer or whatever. Oh, nature has reclaimed blah, blah, blah. You know, like, but. And like, I think it's more, I think it's more effective in, in 28 days later than I Am Legend because in I Am Legend, it's years later and it's all overgrown and that's obviously like CGI grass right. in the middle yeah. of Times Square. But I like I Am Legend a lot. It's a really fun blockbuster. I think yeah, it's good. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah. But yeah, no. The 28 Days Later is eerie in ways that few movies like this are genuinely eerie, I think. It's like a DiCurico painting. You know that um, artist DiCurico, The Mystery yeah. and Melancholy of a City Street? When, he's, when Jim is walking around London in this weird, I guess it's like dawn light and stuff, it reminds yeah. me of those DiCurico paintings, which are very dreamlike and very... Again, uncanny. We'll, um, we'll get into yeah. this more, I'm sure. But the, the sort of timeline of Danny Boyle and Alex Garland's positioning of this movie in the press when they were promoting it, it felt like they very quickly tried to shake off the zombie title. And it was like, well, they're not really zombies, so you shouldn't hold them to the history of zombies. Right. They're the infected. It's sort of its own thing. And then they pivoted even more to being like, this isn't a movie about them. It's a movie about societal collapse. The infected people aren't the important point. And I think a lot of that was that zombie was a bit of a bad word. It was seen as such a low rent thing that they didn't want to get tagged with that. Yeah. And they and they also, I think, didn't want nerds yelling at them about like zombies have to do this, this, right. this. And they're like, we're not trying to tell you what zombies right. do. This is what zombies have to do. go to the right. mall as a critique of 1980s right. cap consumer capitalism. But I think you're right, Reese, that it's like it, it, they're being honest in that the societal collapse is the number one thing they're most interested in in this movie. And the infected are like means to an end. But they're also saying something more interesting with the infected than a lot of these modern movies are. Now, I feel like we're talking around the insane thing. Are you aware, Reese, that this entire movie wrapped production before 9-11 happened? Well, that was one of my questions that I was hoping someone would be able to answer because I think, so I love that because then that's, that serves another one of my little theses that I've created uh, in my mind. Because the movies that I compare this to most often in terms of how I responded to the movie. This, these are, I'm going to name two other genre movies, two other horror thriller genre movies that I, that I found like a lot of comfort and insight in 
about the Trump administration, even though they came out or even though they were in production, I think, before Trump was elected. Yeah, right. And now that you've said this thing about 28 Days Later, it's the perfect analogy. So I think of 28 Days Later as one of the great movies about, quote unquote, 9-11 and the Iraq War. And it ironically was produced before those happened, right? So two of my favorite movies of the last few years are Green Room and The Invitation. For a second, I processed that as Green Book. But yes, no, that makes more sense what you're saying. Yes. Green Book is a distant third, but my top two are, are Green Room and The Invitation. I think the movies I have talked to you the most about since I've known you are those two. Yeah. Movies. Yes. Yeah. I think they have a lot to say about what we used to call, quote unquote, our current situation. Um, <laughs> yes. And so 28 Days Later is the perfect analogy because, yeah, it's like, and I guess that goes to I guess that goes to show that like some truths are universal and are not necessarily explicitly pegged to the news cycle, which is something I have a hard time believing as a former political cartoonist who had a weekly deadline. There are some truths about human nature and the and society and how precious and delicate all these things are that you can make a movie about Trump before Trump is president. But it's still kind of mind blowing to me because when you respond to these movies, or at least when I respond to them. I respond to them through such a specific political lens that it just feels like it had to have been made like after the fact, you know? I, I, this is a thing I've been thinking about a lot because uh, this year's crop of sort of Oscar or Oscar aspirational movies have mostly all bombed in release. Uh, and there's this sort of conversation. It seems you're one of the people pushing this point a lot. The serious fall releases, the uh, right. you know, Fableman's Tar, Banshees, right. uh, whatever. You know, they all underperformed. Women talking, right. things like that. Right. And, and, and the point you keep making, Sims, which I've been chewing on a lot, is, you know, people like me who, who rush to apocalyptic thought uh, mm. are just saying, like, well, I guess just the serious adult theater-going audience has, has left. There are now 500,000 people in the United States of America who will go see any serious movie, and there's a ceiling on that, right? And right. your take has been the movies that we're looking at and, and bemoaning the bombing of are all difficult and off-putting. Even the it was good a, ones— It was a tough crop. It was a yes. tough crop for what I perceive as sort of my boomer relatives, and I do not say boomer pejoratively— who had been saying to me, like, I'm ready to start returning to theaters. What's out there? What should I see? And I would be like, well, you know, you got the Fablemans. It's kind of like a hugely autobiographical Spielberg movie about movie making. You know, like I would always tail off because I knew I did not have a hook for them on any of these. Right. Like right. I knew that they weren't going to be like, oh, that sounds interesting. You know, like, you know, even with Tar, which is probably the most sellable in a way. You kind of just have to be like, well, you know what? You really just got to see it. It's uh, it's just kind of like a special thing, like, or whatever. Well, yeah. And like on one side, certain people are like, I don't want to watch a fucking two and a half hour movie about a hoity-toity conductor. And then there's another side of person that's like, is this some fucking cancel culture diatribe that I don't want to watch? Right. But then there's, there's things too, like right. yeah. she said that bomb and you're just like, well, kind of no surprise here, right? Yeah. No one on earth wants to see that. Right. right. I've seen some journalists sort of making this point. Not even making this point. Uh, uh, I feel like I've seen some filmmakers making this point. I'm trying to remember who it was I saw said this, but it's really been ringing in my head a lot recently that like uh, movies trying to meet the culture rarely work. 
if yes. you are responding to the thing that has already been crystallized in the national dialogue, we don't then want to watch a movie because we're already digesting this thing. We don't need it repackaged for us. The post-Iraq War movies yes. mostly failed at sort of attracting interest because, like right. you say, people were just kind of like, no, I I watch the news. I don't I don't need and, that. And I don't like need to the see last stop loss big or whatever, hit, you know. <laughs> you know, Oscar crossover war movie of that era is Black Hawk Down, which is the one that comes out right after, right before the war starts. You know, it's like uh, it's, another post nine eleven. It's uh, that movie. Yeah, post nine eleven, pre I guess invasion. Um, but I, but I do think there's that thing where it's like a movie like this, uh, twenty days later feels like, well, this has to be in response to the things that happened right before this movie came out. But the reality is, Danny Boyle wasn't a fortune teller. He couldn't see the way that things were going to like manifest and bubble over. But this movie is verbalizing things that were percolating. He could feel what was like about to erupt. What if he had access to the presidential daily briefing that said Bin Laden determined to invite the United to attack U.S.? He was like, "Okay, there's a movie in here somewhere." Let's Bush see how wasn't this plays reading out. them, so maybe he was passing yeah, know, right? them off to right, Boyle. Right, right. Con- Condi Rice was actually using Danny Boyle as a sounding board. Yeah, right. that was what was going on. <laughs> but right. even watching movies like this twenty years later, you can feel the difference between this is a movie made by someone who's been reading the newspapers every day and is trying to find a way to dramatize the thing that is happening in front of all of us, versus. This is Danny Boyle struggling to verbalize something that is a little bit unspeakable at that moment. And then, like, lucky for him, unlucky for culture, by the time the movie comes out, everything had come to a head. And now it was understandable by everybody, you know? But I do think it's that thing of, like, movies don't meet the culture, the culture meets the movies. In terms of the things that really stick, a movie Mm -hmm. is somehow getting at something that then happens to overlap with what's going on culturally in the time it comes out. Arrival's another one where I remember seeing that movie at an early screening and going like, this thing's great. It's going to bomb really hard. And then it came out the week after Trump was elected and was a surprise hit. And it's like, this movie Mm. was in no way a response to Trump. Yeah, but that movie feels so profoundly, it's all about like, we can't be talking past each other and like, Right. You know, things can get out of hand so easily and blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, I love that movie. Suddenly all these things in that movie that felt a little heady and inaccessible a month earlier when I had seen it felt like very accessible to everyone, you know? Or not to everyone, yeah. but you know what I'm saying. No, 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 no 100%. I, I don't know how many movies we've covered on this show that are like that, but this is certainly one of them. You know, that weird, like, how did this movie get ahead of the thing? And how does it still 20 years later feel like a better statement on this era than anything that came out of it? Let me crack into the dossier unless you want to say something, David. Well, I just wanted to say I, I really like the way you are, the way you explain that, Griffin, because as a former political cartoonist who sometimes does other stuff, like my default, my default mode of pop culture making i think is a is a sort of Im, like immediate didacticism that doesn't leave any room for like the ebb and flow of actual lived human experience you know and the idea that a that a good artist can anticipate something that's bubbling up in the culture and express it and kind of get out ahead of it even if their artifact isn't released until after it whatever it mm-hmm. is 
mm-hmm. is really interesting. And I guess that's why people still read Shakespeare because you're you're operating on a level that is not that is not dictated by weekly deadlines and whatever the news of the week is and Fallujah or whatever, but you're actually talk you're trying to make points about humanity which is more or less constant over the course of a news cycle, right? Yeah. Now, just to be fair to yourself, doing a, a, a comic strip uh, is a very different medium than doing a movie where you're on a regular rotation. You're part of that dialogue in real time. Yeah, that's true, too. I don't I don't mean. Yeah, I don't mean to beat up on myself like. But you're right. It's it's a completely different. I mean, a movie you have to know that whatever you're making needs to make sense a year out from the point where you're starting it, if not more. And most political cartoons are essentially just like subway graffiti. Like you read it and it's gone and it doesn't age well. And there's no reason for it to age well because it's that's not what the That's not its purpose, right? It's it's right. it's a real-time processing thing rather than movies which have to in some way be some mirror of something broad enough that it right. makes yeah. sense removed from time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's crack open that dossier. Yeah, so here's yeah. so obviously Danny Boyle's whole thing is that you know he had made uh, these movies with increasing budgets, and the beach is this the most unwieldy thing he ever made. He didn't enjoy anything about that, and so he's sort of like, I have to downsize. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in between, he makes two TV movies for the BBC that are written by Jim Cartwright, who is a playwright and uh, who he'd worked with in the eighties. Uh, people have asked us why we're not doing vacuuming completely nude in paradise. David, you had this response to someone asking about something else. Holy shit. Did he make that? Yes. He did. Do you love that? I think I saw that. It's good. Is there a scene with like a vacuum salesman on the beach? Yes. Correct. I've seen that. That's Danny Boyle. That's Danny Boyle. That's his wilderness period. What the fuck? What was my response, Griffin? I I don't remember. It was a different question of someone saying, are you going to cover this on the show? And your response, which I now just think this is, oh, this is the evergreen response anytime anyone asks us, why aren't you including this in this miniseries? There's only so much time. There's only so much time in the world. But I do recommend Vacuuming Completely Nude in Paradise with Timothy Spall, which I have seen and is enjoyable. I have not seen the other thing he made uh, the same year, which is called Strumpet with Christopher Eccleston, also by Jim Cartwright. I think vacuuming is currently on Amazon Prime in the sure. States. It's free to watch. I saw it was streaming somewhere recently. That, w- that was like a sort of well-reviewed... I mean, Britain has this great tradition of the sort of the TV movie, like... Yes. In a way that America kind of doesn't anymore. And like, you know, it's like a sterling example of that. And I think it was just good for him to be like, okay, I have no money. I have very little time. The way he puts it is like the budget for those two films wouldn't have covered like the catering of the beach. Mm-hmm. But he just kind of needed to, you know, reset. He starts working with Anthony Dodd Mantle on those. I think Vacuum yes. is the first movie he does with Anthony Dodd Mantle where he starts to develop this new... Uh, a simplified stripped down style that very much leads to 28 Days Later where it's like, let, uh, let's not care about how it looks. Anthony Dodd Mantle, very interesting because obviously he's going to win an Oscar with Danny Boyle for Slumdog Millionaire, but he, I first knew him as he's the, the dogma guy. He's, he did yes. Festin and Mifune and Julian Donkey right. Boy, like he, and Dogville is his sort of, fun, you know, like he did all these uh, stripped down insane dogma movies. Um, and just to clarify, it's not that they don't care if it looks good, but it's that Boyle starts to become less precious and feels freed up by how small the cameras are. 
how sort of like wide these sensors are. And rather than making anything picturesque pretty, he's like, well, what's the freedom? How much more can I move around? How much quicker are setups? How many more yes. camera placements can I get in a day? When I interviewed Soderbergh about uh, what's it called? High Flying Bird, which he shot mm -hmm. on an iPhone. That was his whole argument for it was just like, we can just walk and like down New York City, you know, fucking walk down Broadway and be like, walk, 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 walk. This looks like a good spot. Set up five minutes, you know, like, you know, yeah. you can just like be ready to go immediately. Uh, so, you know, this is the early days of digital, obviously. But yes, they're working with all that stuff. So never going back to film. Never. Never going back to film. Do you know that reference? You are never going back. Yes. David Lynch said that. That's what David Lynch said when someone asked him about Inland Empire. Never going back to film. Never going back to film. Uh, Sims, we should touch on Alien Love Triangle quickly. Is that in the dossier here? It's not. It's in the beach dossier, but let me find it. But obviously that is, it's such a strange. I, I just also think Reese will find this interesting. Is that one of your sponsors? Next week. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they're, they're a new gu uh, THC gummies company. <laughs> they're, they're a combo mattress, uh, tux rental company. Well, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, in, in the late nineties, uh, Weinstein dimension Miramax had this idea to do a, uh, anthology movie where they went to three different directors and each of them did a 30 minute sci-fi short film. And the three directors were Guillermo del Toro, Gary Fleeter, and Danny Boyle. And hmm. the other two films, both, when they watched the results, went, why don't you shoot like another hour of this and make this a feature? So one third of that becomes Mimic, Guillermo del Toro's American debut, uh, a film he had a very difficult time making and has talked about at length. One of them becomes Imposter, the Gary right. uh, Sinise movie that's sort of an odd uh, uh, curio. Okay, Dick. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and basically got dumped on release, but some people kind of half defend. And then the third one was Danny Boyle's called Alien Love Triangle that has to date been screened one time. <laughs> the world's like smallest screening room at a, at a train station. Uh, Mark Kermode, uh, the famed British film critic, showed it at the smallest theater in the UK, which is La Charette, which indeed is uh, built from a railway carriage or something, um, which sounds fun. Uh, it stars Kenneth Branagh and Courtney Cox and Heather Graham. Uh, I, 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 it's never, you know, been shown no. really again. So I don't, you know, there's nothing more to say about it, really. No, it was screened for like 10 people in a converted train car. I don't think it's ever leaked out. Uh, it's never shown again. It's been this odd curio for so long, especially because in the years where the beach bombs and, and between that and, and him reemerging with 28 days later where he's in TV, it's sort of like, what happened to Danny Boyle? His movies can't even get finished or released now. He had a movie with like three big stars. The, the premises list on Wikipedia is... Steve Tresemer is a scientist who has created a teleportation device and hopes to use it for various purposes. He then goes home to his mm. wife to share the news, but he learns she is surprised from she is from outer space. It leads to a string of unusual events where beings from space come to visit Chesterman and his friends and show that all is not as things seem. It's written by John Hodge and produced by Andrew McDonald. It's the classic team of the first three movies. Yeah. 
Four. I like that he invented a teleportion device and planned to use it for various purposes. Various. That is good of him. Yeah, that he mm-hmm. wasn't just like, not going to use this at all or only going right. to use this to bet on basketball games or whatever. You know, he had a lot of ideas. Uh, but doing the TV movies, I think, was also probably somewhat a reaction to his frustration of that never even getting seen. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I don't. I, he's really not talked about that movie at all, uh, which is interesting. Uh, so Alex Garland obviously wrote the novel The Beach. He did not write the movie. But he sits down with Andrew McDonald, the producer of The Beach and all of Danny Boyle's movies, and he says, I've got an idea. Uh, he was sitting at a pizza place in a street in London called Charlotte Street. I think I know that mm. pizza place. And he said, I've got an idea for a film. It's about running zombies, and it's got daylight, and it's in London. That is his pitch. Interesting. Uh, and Andrew McDonald says, that sounds cool. And so Alex Garland goes off and writes a spec script, and Alex Garland does not care about using the word zombies. He's like, I don't care about the technical differences. I don't uh-huh. care if they're reanimated or not. Like it does there. This, this film is the, in the lineage of zombie movies, obviously. Uh, and uh, the resident evil films, which we did not mention, of course, David. Oh, that's right. The other, that was, the other that's branch. a blind spot in my zombie canon. I've never seen a Resident Evil film, although I have watched somebody play that game and I remember it being really exciting and scary. Uh, Romero was supposed to direct Resident Evil, by the way, Reese. Yes. Oh, uh, really? He had directed yes. a commercial for the video games that got a lot of buzz oh. and then they were developing the movie and it was this thing that people were so amped about where they were like, holy shit, a major studio is going to give Romero to make a modern zombie movie with modern technology He's being legitimized. And then I think they sort of got scared at the last second about him not making something accessible enough and flipped over yeah, to Paul W.S. Anderson. It was a very loose adaptation of the game. There was some yes. anxiety about that. Uh, there's just a weird scenario where Paul W.S. Anderson was actually working on another zombie movie and they were like, we're going to turn this into Resident Evil. Uh, it's all very strange. But yeah. so, but so that is a fair point that Alex Garland is making where he's like, I did not revive the zombie genre. Resident Evil, the video game, really was the beginning of the revival. And I'm drafting off of that a little bit. And obviously there is the movie. Although the movie at the time, I mean, it did okay, but it was not well received. Like, no, I love those films. I'm fond of them. I'm fond of the series and the directions it go in. But the first film, video game fans were like, this is not like the game. And then regular critics were like, this is like trash. This is like stupid bullshit. Like, you know, so it was not really like a landmark. And horror people were like, we could have gotten a Romero movie and we got this instead. It feels very sort of wafting off the vibes of the Matrix and Equilibrium and that whole era. So uh, another huge uh, inspiration for Garland. Have you ever read The Day of the Triffids, uh, David Reese? Um, I have had it recommended to to me but i've never read it but i know the basic premise and when yes. i was talking to your former guest john hodgman about the fact that i was doing this episode he said well you know they ripped off the opening of this movie from day of the triffids i said no but i'll be sure to mention that isn't that also basically what body snatchers is pulled from triffids as well yeah the, 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 that it's a, a plant-like organism and obviously now we've got the last of us out there that's also you know evil fungus mm-hmm. is what we have to fear but uh, yes, Day of the Triffids opens with a guy in the hospital waking up being like, what the fuck is going on? So he does, uh, Garland shouts that out. He's like, I'm a huge fan of that book. Uh, he's also a huge J.G. Ballard fan. And J.G. Ballard had done a lot of post-apocalyptic writing, you know, in his sure. life. Yeah. Uh, so he likes that. But 
the way Garland puts it that I feel like will resonate with you guys the most is this was just a paranoid story coming out of the paranoid time. Lots of stuff was happening in this country that felt like the right kind of social subtext or commentary that you could put in a science fiction films. Uh, film. Uh, da- Danny was particularly interested in the issues that had to do with social rage, the increase of rage in our society. The other thing to mention, Britain had just been dealing with mad cow disease. I know that sounds That's crazy, right. but I lived in Britain during the mad cow thing, and it was it is sort of a unique societal thing that everyone was like, if you eat beef, you might go crazy later. Yes. Like, uh, and I didn't eat beef for like years. Like we just couldn't eat beef. And to bring it back to nine 11, I couldn't donate blood in nine 11 because I had studied in England during the nineties really? and they wouldn't let people who had lived in England. Yeah. I have never been able to donate blood for that reason. I think it's finally over, but there's some giant, like sort of window like it's like 10 years or something i have this very distinct memory in the mid 90s going to taco bell with my mom and her saying you're no longer allowed to get beef tacos you only eat chicken tacos now right wow there was the huge concern about like cheap beef especially like fast food beef yeah and she explained the mad cow thing to me and i was like it's called mad cow and it makes you insane sounds like science fiction yeah it It does yeah i mean as as a as a you know young child hearing my mother explain it to me in that context while i'm at the counter getting ready to order taco bell it felt truly like a like a fucking nightmare dystopian premise where i'm like you take one bite of it like i thought it would be as quick as what happens to brendan gleason in this movie right one bite of the taco you're saying goodbye to your mom i love you very much stay away from me stay away from me right yes the mad cow thing is fascinating that's such an interesting sense that makes a lot of sense i had no idea it isn't i hadn't made that connection either but that is interesting but so boyle is not that interested in like zombie movies he doesn't Mm -hmm. like the sort of aesthetic of them. He doesn't like the lumbering corpses. Uh, and so he does, of course, like that the the, the zombies are running uh, in this. And as you guys had already mentioned, he's in the contemporary press is sort of distancing himself from the zombie genre um, and uh, is more talking about like football hooliganism and road rage. It's a movie and, like, about society. Post-Thatcherism, right. You know, like society. all this stuff. And... Uh, you know, I guess also the, the the biohazard logo of the movie, which is so simple and so effective mm-hmm. that was used in all the advertising conjures like Ebola and things like that. You know, other kind of like pandemic stuff that had happened in the 90s that I feel like had become this sort of scary specter. It's all it's all it's just a really good mix of things that's hitting at the exact right time, which is basically what we were talking about for the first hour of this podcast. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what, what good groundwork we laid. Good job by us, I think. You know, we didn't talk about fucking, you know, Captain Crunch or whatever we, we didn't usually talk about, talk about Shrek. on the show. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. I still gotta see that. I still haven't seen it. I know we talked about it the I'd last time. I'd love to I was watch here. it with you. I'll say we, this. Maybe we were, we'll do it sometime. We were having the debate, Reese, because we're like settling on our March Madness brackets where we let people vote on what we cover. And oh, you know, right. on yeah. Patreon we do franchises like that. And we were like, let's not put Shrek on there. We don't want to fucking actually have to sit down and watch the four Shrek movies. If you there's four watch, of them? Yes. Yes, and that's not yeah, counting the two Puss in Boots films. Uh, if you were watching four Shreks with us, it, I, I would want to do that. I'm not putting you on the spot. This isn't a formal offer. 
But I'm like, that's the one way I'd want to watch those four movies is through your eyes. I, I think for David, <laughs> we could cap it at like two. He doesn't need to see the third and fourth. No, I, if, I, if I'm, I'm going to watch one, I'm going to watch them all. Whole hog. You're, all right, you're, wait, I'm sorry. You're pitching Simultaneously David strapped Reeves? down to a gurney like the monkey at the beginning of 28 <laughs> Days Later. Right, right. <laughs> David, you're you're pitching an escape route to David Rees. You're looking David Rees in the eyes and saying, you want to like not finish something? <laughs> You want to start to it, but sort of like half commit to it. So another thing about this movie that we can talk about sort of a little bit later, obviously, is like the script was always in flux, especially the ending. And they filmed Mm -hmm. multiple endings. The film was released in America with two different endings as kind of a gimmick. I was wondering about that because I remember seeing two different endings in the theater and I couldn't figure out how that was possible. Yes. If you saw it six times or whatever, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's an alternative ending where Jim dies, yes. uh, yep. which is the the bleak sort of ending. Um, and uh, then there's a third ending that they didn't actually shoot, but is in like sort of storyboards and you can watch it on the DVD where they like find a scientist in the bunker who maybe has an antidote. Mm-hmm. Yep. I've seen that too. Right. And he decided that he was basically ripping off Near Dark, which is one of his favorite movies, Catherine Bigelow's Near cool. Dark which sort of has that that idea yeah. in it. One of the cleverest things this movie does, in my opinion, is it casts a basically unknown Irish actor named Killian Murphy in the yeah. lead role. Ends up being a pretty good find. Uh, who is a great find. He'd been in a movie called Disco Pigs, which I saw. Based on uh, a play the time. that he had originated yes. the lead in, I think. Yes, correct. And uh, Disco Pigs is very interesting because they it's about these two people who talk in this kind of like... A uh, weird way, and like it's got like a clockwork orange sort of slang right. language, right? Right, mm-hmm. right, right. Elaine Cassidy, who I had a huge crush on at the time, uh, is the female lead of that, and uh, it's a, it's a cool movie. But he's basically nobody, and they're very much going for. I feel like let's cast, let's not cast stars, partly for budget reasons, but I think partly just to feed the kind of you know uh, random anonymity of the movie, right? I mean, it's 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 kind of part of it. You you have Eccleston and Gleason who come in later and are sort of like familiar faces, but your main three leads are all basically unknown at this point in time. They each had one or two credits between them. Naomi Harris had been a child actor. She'd done television, um, okay. exactly as as a child, and she had just been in White Teeth. Oh, no, White okay. Teeth comes out right after in Britain. White there's an adaptation of Zadie Smith's novel on television, which is good, uh, which she's really good in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, she was basically unknown. Killian's basically unknown. I feel like they're just both very special. Like, you know, he's Killian is like childlike and kind of beautiful and so striking, even in the like low res, you know, visuals of it. And you kind of can't stop looking at him, which is really that, helpful. That's the thing. Yeah. I remember seeing the trailer for this movie and A, it was alarming in 2003 in the States to be in a movie theater watching trailers that all look vaguely the same. And then this thing coming up and going like, why does this look like a dupe of a snuff film at Kim's video? <laughs> right. Like, why does this look like this? And then who's this guy at the center of it? And he doesn't really look like any other human being you've ever seen. There is something right. about Killian Murphy that is simultaneously so pretty and so creepy. Uh, there's that story Christopher Nolan tells about like he screen tested for Batman and you can watch Killian Murphy's Batman audition yes. to play the Batman. Megan the Batman, uh, where he's wearing Val Kilmer's suit. And he was like, Nolan was like, I, you know, I realized two things immediately 
the second we started filming the screen test. One was, he's fundamentally wrong for Batman. And two is, I'm witnessing one of the best actors of his generation. Uh, But there was just something about him. You have to, like, weaponize that weird, unnerving quality. And this character is so reactive in so many ways. Just his face popping up in the trailer added to the already established sense of alarm I felt from how weird the movie looked. It's so funny. His career is so interesting. And it is, yes, he gets the Batman screen test off of this. And he was the runner-up. And you can watch the screen test and you're like, oh, that's interesting. But he does seem a little too creepy. And I can see why they shifted him over to play the scarecrow. And then you watch the Christian Bale screen test and you're like, oh, my God. Like, he's he had the entire performance immediately. Like, you know, you're like, right. How do you not? He had the whole thing guy? figured out. Right. 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 But, but the killer Murphy, it's also like there's something so sensitive about him. It's not just the delicacy of his so face, pretty. but there's something so tender in his like spirit to have the lead character, you know, uh, of your horror movie have that balance where he's simultaneously more sympathetic and a little bit unnerving than most of what you're used to seeing in a horror film. Well, it plays it plays very, very directly against like the idea of like, you know, like the walking dead guy, Rick, who's like the rugged cop yes. sheriff. Right, right, right. Who's right. exactly the guy you want to be leading your band of humans against the Against the zombie hordes. This guy's like a bike courier. He's got a weird haircut. Yeah, he weighs right. like 80 pounds. First thing he wants to go do is check in on his mom and his dad, which is very sweet and endearing. And he's got these like sleepy ice blue eyes. Right. But what you're talking about is something that can often annoy me about the zombie genre, which is that kind of like everyone seems to know how to use a weapon really fast and all that. Like where you're like, I wouldn't, you know just be kind of like checking my chamber and like, you know, like, you yeah. know, loading my semi-auto like right away. Like I wouldn't know what to do. And no one in this right. movie yeah, knows yeah, what yeah. to do really, except like drive cars. This is the single best idea in this movie. It is the thing that I only in rewatching it now, I think truly appreciated for the first time to have the movie be based around this idea that a guy's been in a coma for 28 days. And in those 28 days, society's collapsed. Right, And you're just jumping to the point of like how things got this bad this quickly. Everyone else knows the rules, but this guy. Exactly. And obviously the simple, effective, rapid brilliance of this is the way they shoot London, which is sort of legendary at this point where they essentially would just set up a bunch of digital cameras at like five in the morning, stop traffic for like two minutes and you know get an empty streetscape right. and then run run on like you know and they were doing it without permits you know basically every day of recording started with them trying to get one shot of like a vacant area right this is part of the 911 thing david is like danny boyle's been like we're shooting on like the westminster bridge we're shooting near whitehall like this is the seat of power in in britain like it's you know where the government is we would have been immediately arrested post yeah right yeah like, if, if it had we just been that. a little bit later right yeah but it gets credited so much as, oh, this is the movie that most successfully evokes the uneasy feeling of New York in the immediate wake of 9-11. And he's like, 9-11 would have prevented us from getting this footage. And the other thing the movie does, and this is probably because of its budget, it can't afford the spectacle of World War Z where there's a million extras and zombies is. A lot of those wide shots, especially after Selena has killed Mark and it's just her and Jim, they're just these really wide shots. It's like, yeah, the end of the world would probably be pretty lonely. Like, yeah. Pretty desolate. Mm-hmm. And the and the and the uncanniness of the fact that 
The streets are not littered with the bodies of the dead. It's not just that society has collapsed. It's also like the rapture. Like everybody's just right. disappeared. For this guy waking up, he's not waking up to like a massacre. It's it's right. this uneasy. Yeah. There's something poetic and beautiful about it, but it's lonely and sad and just immediately off-putting. It does feel like an odd dream you would have. I mean, it's very similar to the Vanilla Sky opening where it's like something's fundamentally off in reality right now. The Vanilla Sky opening is what a good magic trick as well. The, the empty Times Square thing is, is so cool. And is another thing that comes out after 9-11 and never could have been shot after 9-11. An interesting quote about one of our former subjects, uh, Danny Boyle says, Kubrick would make his films through the studio system, but he worked with so few people. His crews were so tiny. Uh, that's why Warner Brothers allowed him to shoot for so long because day by day it didn't cost that much. Mm -hmm. Like... And that's what Boyle says, like, he was trying to do. The same kind of thing of, like, yeah, 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 you know, like, I'm going to take my time over here, but, like, we're, like, we're only working for a few hours a day, and it's only a few people. Like, yeah. there's not a lot of people on payroll. This isn't, like, some massive production where every fucking day we go over schedule or whatever. It's a disaster for the studio. Yeah. Right. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. I, the other thing that is, it's just, it, I love it so much. It, London, much like New York... Everyone in, on earth has an image of what it looks like in their head. And to see it look different is just, is just the coolest thing in the world. It's so, it's so desolate and scary and like, it's so evocative. Yeah. It's, 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 it's an incredible opening and, and like the trailer would lead with this and it just immediately grabbed you. But I have a question about this. Can I ask you a question about that opening scene when he comes out? The scene of him looking at all the flyers, the missing persons flyers. That has to be post 9-11. Uh, so, so, yes. So, Griffin, the movie did not start, uh, did not film, uh, sorry, did not finish before 9-11. It started shooting on September 1st, 2001. And they shot all of this stuff Im immediately. And 9-11 oh, wow. happens, obviously, uh, a week and a half later. And Boyle does say, like, it changed the movie. It became about how we felt vulnerable to something happening. Uh, became about how vulnerable cities are. Uh, okay. And we set out to make this film about social rage and it became a more complex response. So obviously the film, the script had already been written. The film's been planned, but it is at least in their head a little bit. Right place, right time. It's seeping into the DNA. Sure. Yeah. The missing persons thing has. Yeah, that's like because those were all I remember being downtown after 9-11 and that stuff was everywhere. You guys must remember that, too, if you were there. Yeah. Like the... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, weird time. Yeah. Pretty upsetting. Uh, I lived in London, obviously, and I. Yeah, I had weird sort of feelings about it, like missing being in New York. Like, you know, I felt like guilty that I wasn't there. It was a very strange sort of emotional thing. You know, I have other friends who had left New York before 9-11 and said the same thing, that they felt really guilty and they weirdly, you know, I don't know they felt like they had betrayed the well, city or but something. But David's also right? got a Mark Wahlberg approach where he believes if he had been here, it would have gone down like that. Oh, so right. That's why he feels guilty. He thinks he could have stopped it. Yeah, I do. The, the thing I remember most profoundly is the first time I went to New York after 9-11 was in the spring. So like April 2002. And my parents uh -huh. had worked downtown because, uh, well, especially my mom was a city hall reporter. So she worked downtown right by the Trade Center. And when the first time we went down there, they were like, it's so bright because the towers were gone. It was so <laughs> right. The yeah, sun yeah, was suddenly like shining wow. down. Yeah. And they were yeah. like, they were trying to tell me like, you don't understand. It's like really different just atmospherically like anyway so uh they're making this movie um on these digital cameras that are so new and uh they've got this kind of anarchic 
production approach. I don't mean anarchic, like chaotic. I mean this kind of just like, you know, guerrilla style. We're going to run and go. Yeah, and DIY. Like, you know, yes, yeah. right. It's the, it's the dogma thing. It's it's a it's sort of a punk response to what how film was was seen and how it could be made. Yeah, and like this, and like the way they all the quotes in this dossier are just like it's true kind of like they're a cadre they all are just like we all cared about this so much we you know there was only a few of us on the crew so it was like a real you know band of brothers thing like there's no hierarchy we were all in it together uh so that's pretty cool which i think when you're talking about those tiny crew and the diy and it being anarchic like so the music that is that plays as jim wanders the empty streets of london and it kind of builds it builds to this incredible crescendo of guitars yeah. and cellos. The original music was by Godspeed You Black Emperor. Yes. It's called which was like an Instincts. Right. Which was like a which was like an instrumental post-rock kind of band. And they are very political. Mm-hmm. They're a Canadian, right? They're a Canadian band. Yeah. The most political nation on earth. <laughs> Lift your skinny fists like antennas to heaven. Yeah. I had oh, that. Sure. Record. Yeah, you know it. Yeah. I remember, you know, the the hands, the label, the LP has right. like hands yeah. on it. Yeah. And so Danny Boyle really wanted to use their music. And um I they agree they don't usually like license stuff because they're anti-capitalists. And they agreed, but then once I think Fox got involved as an yes. investor or a distributor, then they're like, you can't use our song. This is a bait and switch. Why is this fucking Pepsi can being promoted here in this movie? This is not us. And I think I think that's one of the reasons it's so, so hard to see now is the music rights or clearance. I think that's – because this movie is impossible to stream right now. Now, it was available right. recently-ish, so you I don't really know what the vibe is. You want to know is. what's weird? I got – this and 28 weeks later as a bundle on iTunes within the last couple of months in anticipation really? of us doing this series. And then I went to check iTunes and it was missing. Right. They, this is the thing about DCM. They can just take it away. Just take it away. It, I, I, I bought it. I have like through movies everywhere, my library linked to other things. So then when I went on to like uh, Amazon or Vudu, it was there. But it's it's weird how recently this is, movie has been stricken from iTunes. Yeah, I have the the two disc set with Twenty Eight Weeks Later. That's what I have. Yes, I have that too. This is a pretty absurd movie to watch on Blu-ray. Y- yes, <laughs> Blu-ray is like high def. Yeah, y- yeah, yeah. Because this movie's in like four eighty p basically. Right. Uh, yeah. And uh, you know, it, it, sometimes it feels like it's in like one p. Uh, or like two eye. Well, we shot in binary. Yeah, it's kind of it's the way we're so. I feel like our eyes are now so adjusted to these like 4K streaming websites that can just like produce these r- relatively impressive images that we kind of take for granted. Where we, you know, like you know, or whatever. And then, so it is. It, there's more of a shock to it now. Maybe the, right? watching this feels like when we've watched like the the director's cut of uh, Swing Shift or like the musical cut of I'll Do Anything, where you're like, this is like a VHS that was smuggled out. This thing is like so degraded; it's hard to even make out what you're seeing. Which is part of the magic of it, right? Like it yeah. feels like you're watching some secret thing. Yeah. Yeah, same with uh, the same with Night of the Living Dead being in black and white. Yes. It's that you have this distancing, dreamy filter as opposed to like World War Z, which is probably shot on some of the nicest cameras in the world with a trillion dollar budget. Right. There's only there's a it looks too nice to really get under your skin, at least for me. This is also coming no, at I the exact point that 
like George Lucas and Michael Mann and some of these guys are standing up and going like, you can shoot video. Video is becoming high definition enough that you can shoot video and play that in a movie theater and people will not revolt. And so we're like right on the precipice. Attack of the Clones has come out, but otherwise like the precipice of these people we're going to start to experiment with high def video and turning into like a valid medium and a valid format at least. And then Danny Boyle is like doing the exact opposite thing where he's like, scale it back, pull it back home video right. camera. Yeah. Right. Um, obviously there is a sequel to this film 28 weeks later, which we are going to talk about on our Patreon. Boyle does not direct yeah. it because he doesn't want to do the same thing twice. Although he does do some first, uh, AD stuff on it. I don't know if I knew that. Uh-huh. I thought he directed the opening sequence, think, the legendary. Yeah, maybe, yeah, right. Which is really sequence. cool from what I remember. Which is the best part, which is exhilarating and terrifying and the best part of the and, movie. And obviously, like Robert Carlyle is in it. You know, it's got like sort of Danny Boyle yeah. favorites. We're, uh, we're going to be covering it on Patreon. Yes, we will. Um, and uh, But they have, Garland and Boyle have both been talking about doing a 28 months later. Yes. There's some idea they have that they like. They had a script at the time. I think, weirdly, 28 weeks was seen as a disappointment, even though it outgrossed 28 days, but the expectations had gotten so much higher. And they had the script they wanted to do, and Danny Boyle was like, I like the idea so much, I might have to come back to direct it. But then the excitement had sort of gone away. And now, recently, Boyle has been saying, like, I really like that script, I'd like to do something with it. I can't imagine what is happening in pop culture right now also that would make them think these kinds of themes would be relevant. (laughs) Nothing. What are you guys talking about? <laughs> what, what's that, Ben? Sorry. <laughs> what are you talking oh, about? I don't understand. Ben is infected. Ben is infected. Yeah, ben currently is currently infected. infected. We're doing this episode remotely. Uh, everyone, uh, calm down. Uh, Killy Murphy was like, well, I can't do this movie anymore because it's been more than 28 months. I'm like old now. I don't look the same. And And Sims and I were texting about this where it's like, oh, it's crazy that he could do 28 years later now. It's getting mm. close to that because this film is yeah. now basically 20 years old. Yeah. Uh, obviously, 28 months later would just be a couple of years later. Right. But doing 28 years would be interesting. Yeah, so maybe that's what they do. I yeah. don't know. Uh, it is amazing how... It's just crazy. Obviously, Nolan blows him up and uses him plenty, and that's part of his... And Boyle uses him again in Sunshine, obviously. But like... He's going to be the lead of a gigantic movie this summer, right? Mm-hmm. Playing the uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer for Christopher Nolan. He's done like six seasons of a, a global blockbuster TV show. Yeah. Is he the most famous he's ever been now because of Peaky Blinders? Like, yes. is that true? Yes, it is, yes. right? Yeah. Peaky Blinders. Have you seen Peaky Blinders, David, at all? You might enjoy it, those British gangsters. I don't think so. Um, that is what Killian Murphy is. It's old timey British gangsters, in. right? Yes. Brummy, yeah. brummy gangsters from the 19 zeros, you know, like gentlemen. I might gangsters. have watched half an episode with Emily and just been like, this isn't for me. Mm-hmm. It's too old hey, Uh, Tom Hardy plays a rabbi in a few seasons. I was going to say, <laughs> uh, there's, there's some drop-ins in that one. Anyway, uh, let's talk about the plot of the film a little bit. Mm-hmm. Obviously we've been talking about some of our favorite stuff in the film, um, but do you guys like the opening, the pre-Killian Murphy sequence with the infected chimpanzee and the panicked doctor played by British comedian David Schneider and like all this stuff? And extreme animal rights activists. 
who were who were such a thing back then. And they we don't so, exist you know, like anymore. The, the twelve it's monkeys just, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, just yeah. gone. It's just don't gone exist from the anymore. Ben, clearly, someone hasn't seen the last two Jurassic World movies. Go on, David. Right. Uh, you're right. You're I haven't. Right, you're right. But like, wasn't that such a trope in the '90s where people yes. were like, "Oh, left wing terrorists who are, you know, crunchy," you know? Yeah, Earth Liberation Front and stuff like that. So I made a list watching all these zombie movies of like some of the common tropes in zombie movies, mm. which are like so obvious that you don't even need to really spend too much time listing them. But it's really interesting how many of them 28 days later subverts or upends or just gets out of the way entirely. And one of the cool things about this movie that I had forgotten is that it opens with this montage. And this is very common in zombie movies, news montage of society falling apart. Yes. And these montages... Uh, in like in World War Z, you have the classic thing where Brad Pitt is making waffles or pancakes for his kids at breakfast and is distracted by what's on the TV, which is plague is making everyone go crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Always love to have the ominous background news information that you can pick up on before the character does. In Zack Snyder's remake of Dawn of the Dead, it opens with news montage of crazy zombie violence and a Johnny Cash song. It's really effective. 28 Days Later is not subverting that because it came out before it, but it's interesting that when you see the opening news montage of violent imagery, if you know you're watching a zombie movie, you think this is the classic trope of, look at society falling apart because of the zombies. Yes. But it's not that. It's just the news. It's just another day watching the news for this poor monkey because they're trying to enrage the monkey, right? So the very first shot speaks to the fact of, oh, you think zombies and humans are different? Turns out they share a lot in common. They love fighting and killing. This is a thing I remember not being, uh, even though this is the first bit of information you basically get in the entire movie. I don't remember this being part of the marketing. I don't remember this being part of interviews. They were downplaying so much how much it was a zombie movie or wasn't a zombie movie. Uh, It felt a little mind-blowing when you're just used to the rules of like, it's infection, it's a disease, it's this and that, to have this movie open with, they showed a monkey too much violence and he got so angry. Right. right. Then yeah. eco-terrorists freed him and he started biting people and now the mad monkey made everyone go insane. I mean, bet- between blaming everything on the media and then some left-wing eco-terrorists showing up and bringing about the destruction of the world, you think it was written by like William F. Buckley Jr. Yes. or something. Like it really yes. does start off as what could be read as like a really conservative movie. On paper, it it yeah. reads that way, yes. Is the idea that they're trying to reverse engineer something that they're like, if we can find out what causes rage we can cure it is like is that the idea of this experiment i don't know what they're trying to do i think it's just a foolish fucking like thought experiment like let's see what like rage does to a brain i mean it's very similar to what they do to create a a blanca in the street fighter movie of course uh, of course, <laughs> yes, yes. They also I, show him right. the news, right? Or the, with right. Blanca, they just sort of show him like History Channel Hitler documentaries or whatever. But yeah, yeah same idea. Boo. Uh, yes, it. I. I don't. I. I don't know. I read it as them not necessarily having an end goal other than like let's just see what like this does to a brain. Uh, it is funny that when they sure. come in to try to free him, the the scientist knows exactly what has happened. He's like, I know who you are. I know what you want to do. Can I ask a question to David as, a, yes. as someone who was living in England? You were probably living in England 
at the height of what was known, at least in the States, as Cool Britannia. Mm-hmm. This is true. Absolutely. Because of all the hot artists coming out of the Saatchi Gallery and Associated yeah, Scenes. Damien Hurst, but also right. Blur, and also Tony Blair? Oh, maybe mm-hmm. not. Yeah. <laughs> One of the coolest third-way leaders we've ever had. Yeah, exactly. Are these monkeys vitrines that they're kept in? Is that a reference to Damien Hurst's vitrines where he would cut sheep in half and you put know, sharks in formaldehyde? I never thought of that, but that possibly, that po- you know, it does sort of feel like the kind of thing that... I was would, wondering would if light. that was a little... Right. Uh, anyway. It is funny how, like, in England, you know, the sort of young British artists who you're referring to right now... Uh, the YBAs. Yes, the YBAs. So Damien Hurst and Trim, you know, Tracy Emin and right. Angus Ferris, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. In the 90s when I was a kid, it was like this thing in Britain of like, should we tolerate this? Like Britain was like, huh, everyone's excited that he put a shark in formaldehyde, but like, should he go to jail for this? Like, is this good <laughs> for Britain or bad? You know, like right. there's this kind of constant boring debate of like, should government money sponsor such nonsense? Uh, which uh, culminated in one of the Turner Prize winners, which I remember very well and I did attend, was just uh, the Turner Prize being Britain's like number one uh, art prize, was just lights turning on and off in a room. And it's uh, hmm. by Martin Creed. It's called uh, The Lights Going On and Off. And uh, it was one of those things where like sort of fuddy-duddy Brit, you know, newspaper columnists were like, well, we've gone to, we can't just be turning the lights on and off and calling this art. Like, this is outrageous. Tracy Eamon or Eamon or however you say her name, wasn't her piece just like her bed, just like a crappy bed in the corner of a gallery? It is very, very cool. I have seen it. It's called My Bed. Uh, It was exhibited at the Such a good name for a work of art. (laughs) Uh, And it is indeed her bed. It was, I think, a Turner nominee. It didn't win. Uh, And it's like a disheveled bed uh, but it has like, you know, condoms and underwear, you know, like it's this very like raw and kind of right. confrontational piece. Like that's one of those things where you're like, this is uncomplicated. Of course, this is art. Like this is, you know, provoking such a, you know, in- incredible, you know, reaction in you. The lights turning on and off, you know, you're kind of like, well, the lights are turning on and off. I am thinking about this. I'm not sure. I'm not sure to what extent I'm thinking about what you know anything more than is this art you know what i mean but still is interesting um i love all that stuff i was living in boston when all that stuff was happening and i once actually i can't believe i did this but i once took the bus from boston to new york to go to the gagosian gallery to see the damien hurst his first big american show with the shark and the sheep and the dots and Wait, was the was the pp jesus part of that show that was damien hurst right no, that's Andre Serrano, Piss Christ. That was the, and that oh, predated, oh, that was oh, our own yes, version yes. of, it was the National Endowment for the Arts controversy because he had received an NEA grant. And my former, my home state of North Carolina, our former Senator Jesse Helms was, um, although a huge patron and supporter of avant-garde urine-based artwork, um, actually <laughs> uh, kicked up a lot of dust about that, yeah. I mean, I I just remember uh, like five months of uh, the New York Post having a field day. Just every day was a different front page story. Oh yeah, that was like manna from heaven for the New York Post. Like they pr- they probably gave him a grant to do it. <laughs> yes, 
there was uh, you know the the Holy Virgin Mary, which was the the um, painting Chris Chris Ophelia or whatever his name is, and that was a gift to Giuliani because Giuliani made a huge stink about that when that show was up at the Brooklyn Museum. Yes, uh, and then uh, the other thing I should mention, if we're going to talk about all this, is that Tracy Emin actually lost to Steve McQueen, the British film director, uh, who initially was like an avant-garde artist that Turner Prize that year. Uh, mm. Steve McQueen, another really cool uh, artist of the '90s, uh, which you know his early stuff like Bear is really really cool. If anyone's seen Steve McQueen's Bear, the whole thing. I went to school very close to the Tate Modern, which opened in the late '90s. Well, up until 2000. It was a millennium project. They turned this, you know, everyone probably knows it now. It's a big museum. They turned this uh, power station into a modern art museum. And it had this turbine hall. It has this turbine hall that's this massive space that can have these massive uh, art installations in it. And I would just go all the time at like lunch and just hang out in like, fuck, what's his name? What's the guy who does the really big stuff? I'll think of his name. Richard Serra. Jeff Coons. No, I'll, I'll come up with it. Uh, not him, although he's cool too. Mm, no, he's not. <laughs> no, is he not cool? Is he bad? I can't remember. What does he no, do again? He's, he does the big the ass animal the, balloons. The, and the, the balloons? Yeah. yeah those yeah. things can go fuck themselves. You guys are out on the balloons, but they're so shiny. I mean, the balloons are amazing objects and the fabrication is incredible, but I think of Jeff Koons and Damien Hirst as just so profoundly cynical. Yes. It's like their their entire career now is to, is to trick hedge fund managers into thinking they have taste while running <laughs> off with their money. And it's just like, there's so much. And they don't also know. don't even make any of the artwork. Yeah, right. They're just outsourcing yeah. everything to right. like fabricators. Yeah. 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 Ben gets it. Hell yeah. <laughs> um, the, the person I'm trying to think of is, is Ofer, oh, oh, sorry, Olafur Eliasson. Uh, if anyone knows him, he did something called the Weather Project in 2003, where he installed a giant sun in the mm. turbine hall and turned out the lights. That looked incredible. And you they put a giant mirror on the ceiling, and you would walk around looking up, and you could see yourself, and you could sort of like walk without running into anyone because you were looking at this mirror a thousand feet in this. It was so fucking cool. It's like sunshine. It's like the Danny Boyle movie Sunshine. Yeah, man. Uh, anyway, so. Love, love that, love that time. Twenty eight days later, definitely has that electric energy, right? With a lot of Danny Boyle stuff, does that kind of cool Britannia, right? Yeah. You know. I mean, it's it's so much of what we've uh, pulled up in in dossier quotes in all the movies we covered so far is that uh, Danny Boyle thought British movies needed to be cool, that right. there was not an excitement in the way you had in British music and uh, art in the in the film area and he wanted to bring that energy to it it's what is so baffling about the latter half of his career for so many people i think that he then yes. takes this very sincere swerve and yeah. millions of course being his follow-up to this being the one where people are like danny boyle didn't direct this what this is like some cute kids movie like what he didn't make this like danny boyle danny boyle like must be another guy um anyway uh so all right so there's the monkey the monkey gets out and then we cut to killian murphy he's nude in bed very mm. british opening i feel like where they're like this ain't hollywood baby you're gonna see a, a soft penis wedding you know like around. Yeah, yeah right you know like this is real although i don't really understand this. what are the circumstances in which he was left naked in a hospital bed in a coma and then just kind of abandoned I read on a website about zombie movie tropes when they go through this movie one by one and identify everything in this movie that has happened in another movie. And and 
Uh-huh. One thing on the website was a subtle detail that I didn't pick up on, even though I've watched it so many times, which is that whoever left him in that hospital bed, well, they didn't take the time to write an explanatory note or to put them in a smock or anything, but sure. they but they did close the blinds in a, to his door so the zombies wouldn't be able to see him because you see him opening blinds. And they also locked him in the room and slipped the key under the door. Because remember, mm, he finds right. the key to let himself out. So they did take some precautions on his behalf, but maybe they were pressed for time. Also, as to why he's naked, his nurse was uh, Shirley Henderson's character from Train Spotting. She wanted to see what he was working with when he was passed out and then found it very disappointing. It's continuity within the universe. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he wakes up uh, and there's this whole extended sequence of him wandering around central London. Uh, and then the first, I feel like the first infected human he find he comes across is the priest, right? In the, the priest church. is the first zombie yes. who tries to kill him. Yes. But that image when he walks into the church and he just sees the ground strewn with bodies. And because of the lo-fi nature of the, the yeah, cinematography. Like, what am I looking at? Right, right, right. It's this thing I love that like every image in this movie becomes a bit of an abstraction where you're fighting to understand what you're seeing. And it also makes it harder to identify who is infected at first and who is not because you're never getting a clear look at anything. Right, yeah, yeah. The graffiti, the end is fucking nigh. You like that? Yeah. I like whoever spray painted that was like, fuck it, man. Right. Like, really, you know? Like, I'm going to do this, but who fucking cares? This is my lasting legacy is being like, eh. The flyers is the other thing. I just yes. David already mentioned that, but the the eeriness of the, the 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 flyers papered all over everything. Yeah, I will say that he could could have spent a little more time reading the newspaper that he picks up and glances. Yeah, at the he sort of picks it like, up and throws it out. Yeah, it's weird. He goes straight to the funny pages and then like the movie <laughs> listings, and then he throws it He's out. Like, eh, yeah, Curtis really has it this week. <laughs> we'll have to shout out Curtis. Will that kid's hat ever fall off? Um, no, uh, Reese, you're talking about all the like conscious subversions in this movie, right? You think about this being the first fast zombies movie. You have the sequence. He walks into the church. He sees these dead bodies. Some of them start moving. You don't quite understand what's happening. And because the zombies in this movie aren't green skinned, they don't have like clear, obvious rotting flesh wounds. Right. Uh, and the cinematography abstracts it so much. That, like, the doors throwing open and this priest walking in really fast. For an audience member going in cold, you you wouldn't necessarily think this was a zombie. Right. It feels like something's wrong with this guy. Right. He's traumatized or he's he's hysterical. He's 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 warning him away. Like, get out of here. Right. But just the, the basic clip at which he's moving is going against the way we're wired to see threats in these movies. Yeah, totally. At first blush. Uh... And I love it. I love it. I love because I, you know, it is such a classic zombie trope, usually, that the guy is coming at you slowly. Right. And you're kind of like, hey, hey, man, are you okay? Right. Hey, and they just hey, keep are lumbering you right, towards man? you. Right. <laughs> They're just like, Ugh. and this, he has to make the instant decision to bean this guy, you know, and, yeah. and then he's immediately like, I shouldn't have done that. Right. And then obviously, you know, right. He he's, I, I love cry, how quickly, yeah. like, the Catholic you know, guilt <laughs> kicks right, up. Right. 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 Yeah. Right. Uh, and he's uh, he encounters Selena, who's played by Naomi Harris, and Mark Noah Huntley. Not an actor mm-hmm. I know that well. Who no. is he? Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, and they go to Deptford, which is in sort of 
you know, whatever, Southeast London, uh, to see his family who died by suicide, essentially, and left him a note being like, you know, we didn't want to wake you up, essentially. Right. Yes. That's such yeah. a heartbreaking thing to have someone like walk into a room and witness what would be one of the, the most awful, the unimaginable right. thing. Right. And everyone around him is going like, you're really fucking lucky. You're lucky that right, this is right. what you get to see. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm such a sucker for these tropes. Like, I love this sort of, you know, the time shift, right? Where he's <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And Naomi Harris is like, I've only been doing this for 28 days, but I've completely transformed, right? Like yeah. my, my personality is hardened and like, you know, I'm this kind of like spiky road warrior now. What's well, also what's basically scary about the idea of having a coma, going into a coma for any reason yes. is like, what if I wake up to an unrecognizable world and unrecognizable can mean anything like, you know, yes. uh, uh, my parents got divorced I don't recognize this world I'm waking up into. And then this is just such an extreme shift of every single norm uh, he knew and believed and that everyone has adjusted to this world so quickly that the basic tenets of humanity have shifted. But but Mark getting the 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 wound, right? And how quickly where we're so used to in zombie movies when someone reveals that they're infected or someone is hiding that they're infected and it's found out there's this belabored scene of people being in conflict with their own emotions. Can I do it? Right. And sometimes the infection, you know, it lasts over the course of hours or days and you yes. watch and it usually happens much late. So, yeah, let me I want to I just want to keep track of the of the tropes that are being subverted here. If I can backtrack, the one thing that him being in a coma and waking up to an empty London denies us is what is always my favorite moment in a zombie movie, which is the slow realization that something's not quite right. Like, what are all those ambulance sirens, which has happens in World War Z, which is also a very the, much a 9-11 New York response. About. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, why yeah, is that right. person, why is that old lady beating the shit out of that other person with a cane and eating their head? <laughs> like, that can't be normal. We kind of are dropped down into the middle of it. Like, all that action has already taken place and is over with. Mm -hmm. And then with Mark getting infected, which is Jim's fault, right? I mean, we know that he just woke up, but he shouldn't have lit a candle in his house because that's what leads the zombies to bust through. There's two There's two subversions at once, which I think are really exciting. One is that you turn instantly. Like, there's no yes. waiting around to see what happens. And the second is that she kills him instantly. It's genuinely shocking. That's the big thing. Yeah. Usually in that's zombie movies— right. A beloved member the, of your I'm team. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, yeah. There's that, but also usually if some if one of the good guys is bitten, it happens like two-thirds of the way through the movie, which happens in this case with Frank, obviously, who's the much more important character than Mark. But still, yeah. watching this for the first time, he gets bit and she just immediately chops him with a machete and like one fell swoop. It's like, oh my gosh, this is like really exciting. The stakes are really high. This is not going to be like yes. a regular zombie movie. And speaking to the like, are we the real monsters thing for Jim? That's terrifying. Yeah, he's freaked out. See. Yeah, right. And that she's desensitized to it. That it's just like, well, I know what needs to be done. Let me grab my axe. Let me hack him to bits. I wonder if the machete again. This is just this is where my head was at after reading the Samantha Power book about genocide, which focuses a lot on the Rwandan genocide and the the insane thing about that genocide, which is that. Between 500 and 800,000 Rwandans were killed by their neighbors by hand, just with machetes. And the machete is a really iconic 
association for that particular genocide. Yes. You know, every genocide has its own mechanics, its own techniques of of death and erasure. And I wonder if that was a specific choice to give her. I mean, machetes are also just very tough, and I know they're cool like samurai swords. But I was wondering if if using a machete was was a was a reference to the Rwandan genocide. Because again, because where my head was at when I watched this movie, I was like, boom, Rwandan genocide movie reference. Like this movie is going to be insane. You know, like Henry Kissinger is going to show up and get his head blown off. This is going to be the best movie ever made. Like I was so yeah, primed imagine for if it. That was the end of this film. Yeah. I, I'm trying to remember exactly how they get there. So you guys might not know. So Brendan Gleeson's character, Frank, and his mm-hmm. uh, daughter, Hannah, they're living in Balfron Tower, which do you guys know what Balfron Tower is? That's not the one that burned, is it? No, it is not. Okay. No, no, no. That's a very bad building, a very poorly designed building. Bal- Balfron Tower is like one of the most famous, brutalist pieces of architecture in the world. It's uh, it's a listed building in Britain. It's like, uh, you know, uh, protected because it's so special. If you guys look it up, it's a very cool looking building. But obviously, because it was brutalist architecture, it was sort of frowned upon at the time. Mm-hmm. But it's so striking. And it looks like this spaceship that fucking landed, you know, just like, pow, like, you know, just sort of plummeted down to London. Uh, and uh, you guys, it was designed by a very famous architect called Erno Goldfinger, who uh, Ian Fleming hated so much. No wow, So much that he named Goldfinger wow. the villain after him. Hated yes. him so much he uh, did him the biggest favor possible. He immortalized yeah, exactly. him. <laughs> he made I mean, I, I will. Ian Fleming was also probably thinking like, I mean, that guy's got a pretty good last name. Yeah. <laughs> Goldfinger does kind of roll off the tongue. Um, but anyway, so, but yeah, how do they get there? How do they encounter them? I don't know. They have like the lights. They up have in Christmas the lights that are twinkling yeah, yeah, and they yeah, go yeah, there right. and then they and they find that they've been barricaded by shopping carts. Right. Uh, which is very ad busters. And uh, then they right. go up and they get chased. <laughs> they get chased up the stairs, and Hannah is reluctant to let them in, and uh, and then she relents when Frank gives her permission. He says, "No, we can trust these guys to let them in." Can I say one thing about this opening sequence? Anything. This kind of bothers me. The thing to keep in mind, and this becomes especially relevant once they reach the military compound, is, and I, I feel so crass saying this, but it's kind of like, guys, it's only been twenty-eight days, like. You really you it's have nothing to eat but candy bars and soda pop? Yeah. Like, it hasn't even been a month. There's a weird kind of like time accordion thing where in some ways it feels much longer than 28 days, you know? Well, that's like what happened to me when lockdown started. And I was like, oh boy, I really don't shop well. <laughs> right. <laughs> Two days in, you just have nothing but soda and Snickers. My, my fridge has only different holiday Reese's shapes. Right, yeah. All right, maybe, yeah, it was maybe bad bad planning from they're caught off guard these guys were caught off guard i mean frank is a cab driver i do like that because it's sort of like a magic london thing of like he has a kind of a robust vehicle and also he knows he has the knowledge every street he has the knowledge uh which is what uh london cabbies have to learn it's called the knowledge uh do you know that griffin i love i love dropping my english if you want to be a black cab driver in England, you have to do something called the knowledge, which is you basically drive around London streets for like two years because London has no geography that makes any sense. Yeah. I, I forgot that the knowledge was the term, but I do know about this because it's constantly invoked as the thing that New York cab drivers are not required to do. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> because yeah. obviously in New York's geography is simpler, but like the, it is crazy in London where you get in, you know, I lived on Burley Road and I would get in and I'd be like, I'm going to Burley Road. And they'd be like, 
which Burley Road? And I'd be like, NW5, that was my zip code. And they postcode. And they'd be like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just like, there's one million streets in London. There's no sure. like arteries or no grids right. or anything. Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. like, yeah. Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, I know how to get there. Yeah. They just need to know it all like the back of their hand. Uh, isn't it wild? It's not like uh, Brennan Gleeson is young in this movie. Uh, he's obviously no. already in dad mode. Uh, it it is now odd. He's to probably see... in his forties. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. It's odd to see him on screen now without a single fleck of white in his beard or yeah. hair. Like I feel like I mean he's just Brendan Gleeson looks incredible always, and all the different phases of Brendan Gleeson are incredible. But like his weird elder statesman phase now, where like the contrast between like the hyper bright orange. And then the white and gray and his beard and his hair is so fascinating. And this, you're just like, oh, you're just like perfectly ginger. He's a lovely ginger man. Is he the guy who's in Banshees of in- Inisherin? Yes. 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 His first Oscar nomination. Long overdue. For that. I can't see that movie because literally one of my other recurring nightmares is that all my friends secretly hate me. And my understanding is that's the plot of the movie. And it's oh, like, you will hate this. A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. I can't see that. So what if your friend one day was Literally like, had that dream last night now that I remember it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Has Brendan Gleeson been reading your dream journal, Reese? And like, <laughs> maybe that's what it is. One yeah. by one. Your other dream is being stuck in prison with a nice bear who forces you to make marmalade. Yeah. Another, he yeah. stars in every movie yeah. about my nightmares. Yeah. I, I'm going to sue right. him. Uh, he's also, of course, in AI, artificial intelligence. What? Discuss. He's the flesh he is, fair. Remember, he's the flesh MC. fair guy. Oh, yeah. The, do not be, like do the, not be conf, you know, confused. This is a robot. Oh, my God. Know. I need to keep my distance from this guy. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God his acting lesbian will not be passed on through airs that I might stumble upon in TV and movies. <laughs> he's got Re- many, Reese, many airs, of course. Reese, I have even worse news for you. What? <laughs> You're forgetting that he played the figure of your all-time greatest nightmare. Donald J. Trump. He did. He, in That's what? Right. In the, the Comey the rule. Comey rule. On Showtime. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> you know how they're now making a movie? They're making a movie, or is it a Showtime series or something, about Prince Andrew blowing the yes. fucking Jeffrey Epstein interview, right? Yes. Like, that's what the movie's about. It's just yeah. about when Prince Andrew shat the bed on TV, like, two years ago. Like, yes. I think we need to stop it with the, like... We're gonna make a movie just about you know Trump firing James Comey. But that speaks like, to that like, speaks to our conversation earlier about the dist- the difference between movies that that are literally just about the news, yes, versus movies that sort of anticipate deeper trends or right. you know some get that sort of gestalt te- tectonic yeah, right. gestalt stuff, right? Yeah, Crazy. right. Like when the Comey rule came out and no one watched oh, it. That's it, a, yes. I didn't look at that's crazy <laughs> it is so funny that they're like i don't know middle-aged actor put the wig on him get oh. it get a spray tan job done sims i'll remind you i called it in a fucking episode like 2016 you did, you did. 2017 you, you said he could do we trump were talking yeah, yeah. about is there any actor who you could actually cast to dramatically play trump not as a parody who would work but like really and i said it. i think yeah. gleason is probably the closest that's an insane have you image. seen the comey rule I've seen clips. His performance seems okay, but like sure. everyone else on the planet, I went, why the fuck would I want to watch this? Right. Right. I don't yeah. would I need to hear this want. retold in a fake style stretched over too many hours. 
Yeah. He's, you know, like any esteemed, obviously he's Irish, he's not British, but, you know, like any esteemed actor from that part of the world, he's played fucking Winston Churchill right, at this yeah. point. You know, he's played a couple of famous Irish people. He played Roddy Doyle. He played Michael Collins. He played uh, in a really good movie, The General. He played Martin Cahill, the very famous played Knuckles McGinty. Dublin monster. Yeah. Played Knuckles McGinty, that Irish hero. Damien Hurst. Um, <laughs> so it is fun. But like I feel like at this point he's in that like you know in the early 90s he's in like Braveheart Michael Collins mm-hmm. uh, the general like in these like interesting Irish movies the butcher boy he's really uh, you know he's uh, he's pops in that as well and like he had just shifted to the sort of like okay Hollywood likes this guy as a sort of 20 minutes character yeah. you know Mission Impossible 2 uh, AI uh, Gangs of New York you know things like that Cold mm-hmm. Mountain right like that's that's where he's at right now so good in Gangs of New York He's incredible. That's in the moment where I remember being like, who the fuck is this guy? Like him in this movie, I think he's a really warm presence. He's a good counterpoint to Naomi Harris because she's so like flinty and intense. Right. He's a little more regular, you know, like you kind of need him. You need the sort of like, okay, can we, can we calm down for a second? Right. Like, Let's have some creme you know, de menthe. This movie is so stressful. Like, yes. Well, right. she, and, and Lo- needs- Love a creme de menthe. Yes. Yeah. His mere energy needs to shift her entire worldview. I mean, you have that scene where Naomi Harris says, like, he made me believe there is a thing worth fighting for again, just because he is able to maintain some sense of, I don't know, I don't want to say enjoyment in life, but he's finding value in life and still being alive and in his relationship with his daughter. And it's like... There are no big showy scenes where he has to like sell that. It's just basically in the essence of this man. But I do feel like David in your zombie trope uh, list, the sort of lovable guy turning and being like, get away from me, get away from me. Like that, that's, that's big on the tropes, right? Yeah. And this uh, is one of the better examples of it. This I've, that whole sequence is really affecting. It's so affecting. Yeah. It's really nice. I I just remember the entire audience gasping when the blood goes into his eye. Yeah. It's that, it's that it's like, Oh God, no, we like this guy. This guy figured, but ah, God damn it. You know, and it's like, it's, it's such a, uh, he couldn't have done anything differently. Well, it's not he could have worn some safety mistake. goggles. They all could have, frankly. You know what? You know what? Fair enough. But that gets back to our armor point. But it's like, it's not like he failed to recognize a guy lurking behind him. Right, yeah, right, you know? yeah. No, it's tragic. It's a It's a nice, it's really well done, and it's, yeah. And the, the aesthetic is cool again, this sort of weird shipping, deserted shipping container place, right? Like, it's it's <laughs> it's also kind of creepy. Right. And, like, urban apocalypse vibes, you know. The, the uh, supermarket obviously... sequence is so good, too, because it's like the first time where they make the collapse of society feel a little bit fun. Huge trope in zombie movies, the shopping spree. Sometimes yeah. it happens at the mall. If you're if you're if you're it's Dawn of the Dead, it happens at the mall. Is that when the granddaddy song is playing? The yeah. like, da, 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 yes. da, da, yeah, yeah, I love that song. Yeah. You got that shot of him with the, the Granny Smith apples irradiated. Says, That's something yeah, I would right. really th- enjoy doing in the apocalypse. Shopping? Yeah. Have you not have you not thought of that guys? Yeah, like going to the mall and getting all of the clothes you've ever wanted to have. I was going to say can do you can do that now and they don't fits. they don't pursue shoplifters. It's part of their loss. There is no loss prevention strategy anymore. 
You don't well, have to wait for the apocalypse. Walgreens and every single item is behind glass and needs six Next keys time they now. make a zombie movie and someone goes to loot the store and everything is locked up, like even the toothpaste, that's amazing. That's funny. Yes. Yeah. Yes. No, I have a feeling I would get arrested. Uh, I don't know if that... I, I know I know what you're, you're alluding to. I have a feeling I would get arrested. You'd be the one. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You would get arrested even in the zombie apocalypse. You'd be like, all right, this is for me. And there's like the one last small cop who's like, look, I don't have any purpose in this world. Yeah, it's except like that for movie, this. The Postman. It's like a post-apocalyptic world, but the guy still is going to deliver the mail to bring society back. It could be like... Right. Kevin Costner is the security guard. Can we talk about them driving straight into a tunnel against Jim's suggestion? Mm-hmm. Yes. Frank, with his cabbie knowledge, still thinks that's a good idea. But it is one of the better sequences of the movie. It looks crazy. Yeah. Don't you think? Like, yeah, it's great. Yeah. The whole sequence is so good. Yeah. So It's so tense with the rats and then deciding to just lift the car instead of using the jack. And tire changing is always stressful to me. So this is just like the ultimate uh, trigger event. But you know what's interesting? So the very famous musical theme that comes in the climax of the movie when Jim's going buck wild and killing everybody, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I read, the composer the composer for the film basically made a Godspeed You Black Emperor sound alike because they couldn't get any more music out of that band of principled Canadians. So he <laughs> created that like incredibly layered, um, menacing, like the, what people consider the theme to 28 Days Later. Mm-hmm. I it only plays once in the movie. I remembered it being played through any zombie action sequence because it's just so distinctive that I associate it with the entire movie. But when they're lifting up the jack or they're lifting up the car in the tunnel, that musical the score for that is much more abstract. Yeah, with just like squealing guitars and feedback. It was not what I remembered it as being, which is the the famous piece of music. But I also think because that piece of music is reused in a lot of other places. It's reused now, in the right? opening of yes. 28 Weeks Later yeah. when they're chasing him to the boat, which is It's much baller. like John Murphy's Sunshine theme that's now just like omnipresent. Right. Yes. Um, but I mean, you know, music is so pivotal to every single movie from Danny Boyle we've covered so far, right? Like it mm-hmm. is, it is his biggest you know, ace in the hole or whatever is that he just se- seems to always know what's going to be like new and resonant and kind of different, right? Like, you know, yeah, he's going to yeah. find music that works for the movie, but it's also like the kind of music you don't really hear in movies. Like, right. you know, like this is going to shock you. Um, He's so clever. So yeah, so they go, yeah. So they go to Manchester. Brandon Gleason dies. Uh, he is shot to death by the military because Christopher Eccleston, major Henry West, uh, has set up some kind of fortified mansion and he's like broadcasting to survivors, but it's all a ruse because as you have mentioned, David, they really just want to like lure women into sexual slavery to like repopulate the world. Cause they've all gone completely fucking crazy. And again, it's been 28 days. Like, 20 days. yeah, but it's, but it's there, the, you know, not to speak ill of our armed servicemen, obviously, or whatever, but there is that kind of like, authority streak that's frightening you know like what if that was completely unencumbered and all of a sudden like the guy with the gun gets to make all the rules you know all that stuff especially in england where people don't have guns like in the same way he's the real anti-brennan gleason though it's like brennan gleason is like not lost any of his humanity and this guy was like chips are down now i get cooking i got bad vibes i make everyone feel uncomfortable 
the slow burn and the slow revelation of what they're actually up to is really effective because there's that scene where Jim is taking he's taking a shower and he looks out the window. Remember, there's that cook character. The yes, there's the army cook Jones who who yep. is you see him literally wearing a pink apron, like the most gendered thing you can imagine. And then Jim looks yep. out the window and the soldiers are like doing donuts in a jeep, teasing the. <laughs> The Jones, who's coded as the woman of the group because he mm-hmm. works in the kitchen and serves some food and stuff, right? There's all these little right. hints that, like, something is awry. That stuff is, like, really good and creepy. That actor, his name is Leo Bill. And, Griffin, you may recognize yes. him from Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. He's kind of like the, a classic shitty chinless wonder. Yeah, yes. this sort of, like, English guy who just kind of looks like he came right. out of a Charles Dickens illustration. Where he's like, ooh, I don't know. Right. You know, like, you know. Of course, uh, good at actor. the beginning of Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland, where he is presented as her prospective husband, and she goes, this is the worst fate imaginable. I must run away and find something else. And ironically ends up in an even worse fate. Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> right. <laughs> Having lunch with Johnny Depp. Should have stuck with Leo Bill. Not so bad anymore. Um, but uh, I like that actor. Uh, so I feel like, obviously, David, you referenced what I feel like is sort of the commonly held opinion on Sunshine, which is like, eh, that movie kind of goes insane right at the end. I also feel like that was true for this movie. Less so, mm. but I do feel like the general buzz on this movie was like, it is outrageous. It is so good. It's so scary. And the final act kind of lost me. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I'll tell you why the final act lost you, because it is so profoundly disturbing yeah. in a in another way. Big ass like, bummer. Not in the high octane, like we're yeah. running away from a zombie thing. Right. But in this kind of like, you're like, oh, Jesus. Like, okay, that is plausible. That is unsettling. Well, you also, you as an audience member, right, there's, there's less distancing. You're not like, you don't walk out of the theater thinking, well, thank God there aren't zombies. I don't have to deal with this on a day-to-day basis. Like, the the Eccleston act, you're just like, oh, right, humanity is pretty fucking awful. Uh, right, yeah. Uh, nothing I can do about that. Right. Uh, there's And there's this, this specific thing of the one zombie soldier that they've chained up, and they're just, like, sort of being like, let's see what happens. They're doing observation on him. He says he's telling me he's futureless. Uh, which, you know, when he's vomiting, when the zombie is vomiting, there's something like weirdly visceral about that. So when they do that, what do you call that filming technique where they, is that, it's that thing where you have every, it's like every other frame, but each frame is held twice as long. You know, that's kind of that strobing effect that he uses for the zombie attacks. So the strobing, right. right. I don't, yeah, I don't know what you were calling. I I believe that is, uh, it's it's all, it's frame rate play. It's filming a different frame rate and projecting it at 24. Right, yeah. And I'm just, uh, my brain isn't working right now and I can't remember if that effect is filming more frames or less frames. But it makes the zombie stuff really, really come alive. And it he uses it really well in the moment that we'll get to in a minute, which was when Jim is about to begin his rampage and he starts cranking the perimeter alarm, which freaks everybody out within the manor. And that's the first time that you see Jim shot at that frame rate because now he's in zombie mode, Right. Right. Yes. So he starts. So Boyle starts shooting him the same way, and all of us. That's why that whole sequence is just like so intense because of the way it's strobing. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's good nasty stuff. I think Eccleston is really well deployed because he is such a familiar face, and he's obviously someone who's worked with Boyle before. But he's so good at playing that kind of knife edge character, where you're like, yes. "Am I? You know, should I trust this guy?" And like, 
he can kind of take it to a point, and then you're like, oh no, he's like really frightening. Well, like, and his his face looks like a knife. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's just yes, yeah, so the, the angular face. He's got that kind of Roman nose. He's got the big yes. beak, uh, which I love. Uh, I love him. I love him as an actor. Yeah, I great. love uh, what a, he's always been like, kind of an outspoken, interesting guy. Like I, I dig. Yeah, yeah, he's really good. Last in movie. Is this his last Boyle movie? I guess it is. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't do a lot of movies. No. Like th- he really he's like selective. He does about a lot work. of television. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Do you like Eccleston in this? Uh, you'll appreciate this, David. The the epigraph yeah. to this Chris Hedges book, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, is the final stanza from Wilfred Owen's Dulce at Decorum Est, which is one mm. of his legendary mm. World War One poems. This is a really powerful poem. Like, it's extremely moving. It and it speaks to Chris Hedges' thesis and also the thesis of this movie, I think, which is like, oh, you think all this fighting and war making is fun? Like, this will this will be your downfall, like, on a spiritual level. All it does is destroy people. But anyway, I wanted to, I wanted to listen to some people reading Dolce Decorum Est. And uh, one of the first YouTube hits is Eccleston doing a reading of it. And it's pretty good. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, did you see Benediction this year uh, or last year? No. What's that? I, I did the not. Terrence Davis film. I, You guys should both see it. It's really good. It's a biopic. It's more about Siegfried Sassoon. Wilfred Owen is also in it, but it's a great Terrence Davis movie about, uh, you know, the World War I poets. And, oh, really? Uh, you know, uh, that whole scene. Yeah, that yeah. Siegfried Sassoon was at least bisexual or, you know, he was he had gay relationships sort of mostly. Wilfred Owen was an amazing yeah. person, a fascinating person. Yeah, yes, and a really good poet. In it. Yep. Do you know what's wild, yep. David? I'm looking at Christopher Eccleston's IMDb. Not only you're saying like, oh, this is his last Boyle movie. He doesn't do a lot of movies. After 20 Days Later, he doesn't make another movie for five years. Right, yeah. I, he does I Doctor Who in between. He does Heroes. Right, he did Doctor Who, which was obviously right. very involved. Right, yeah. But, yeah, but yeah. he does not do a movie between 28 Days Later and Notorious YA flop, The Seeker, The Dark is Rising. Ah, uh, remember when The Dark was rising? And then it's like, right, he has this run of like intermittently like playing Destro in G.I. Joe, playing Malachite and Thor yeah, The Dark the World. Yeah, that's the thing. He would pop up in these, no offense, kind of low-rent, you know, blockbuster movies playing the least villains. interesting villain parts. And and and, and then he would give like, these interviews where he was like, I hated making that. It's yeah. so awful. And, and they're like, like years apart buddy. from each other. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh obviously he's so incredible in um uh the leftovers more recently. I love his part in that television show. And now he's doing the fourth season of True Detective, which I know very right. little about, but he is in it. The fourth a season, people. Yes. Oh, yes. With um, do you remember the Jodie Foster? Jodie, yeah, my friend wrote on that. I'm excited for it. Jodie Foster and uh, what John Hawks is in it. I think I think they filmed it in like Iceland. I don't know. I'm, yeah, it's set somewhere I'm cold. Down for yeah. that. It might even be like Antarctic. It might be set at the North Pole. I think it's something really cool. crazy cool. like that. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I love that. Don't shit. quote me on that, but I think that's true. I hope it's about Santa crimes. That would be cool if like Santa's like. So an elf is dead and we don't know why. And it goes all the way to the top. Yeah. It goes all the yeah, way to Claus. Yep. <laughs> and he's like, stop asking questions. Yeah. I brought you in here to tidy this up. And he's like, I'm going to bring the whole system down, Mr. Toy Man. Uh, anyway, what happens in this sequence? of? I mean, it's really just the, the eventual thing is that he lets the chained up zombie go, which anyone yes. could predict that's going to happen, right? What happens is 
West reveals to Jim that he is going to let the soldiers rape Selena and Hannah. Right. He's like, get in on this with me. You know, are you, do you want to do it? Like, right. He's sort of offering him. Yeah. Jim tries to stop it. Jim and Farrell, who is the one soldier who sympathizes with the, our protagonist. Stuart Macquarie is the actor. Who, yes. who believes that the rest of the world is going on as normal. And this is all, this is like bullshit that, that England's been quarantined, but the rest of the world is fine. So you guys are jumping the gun in terms of repopulating the earth by raping these women. Meanwhile, major West is making the thesis of the movie, which is, I think it's just another day at the, uh, another day at the office. All I see is people killing each other and we've been doing that forever. So there's no difference. So Farrell and Jim are taken out into the woods to be shot by Mitch. Who's like the head bad guy, this really sadistic, thuggish actor and Jones, who is the yes. chef who was wearing the pink apron, but has now killed because there was a zombie invasion and all the landmines went off and Jones shot one of the invading zombies. So now he feels like he's more of a man. Things go awry. And then Jim escapes after Farrell is killed. Uh, the soldiers return to the, the compound to Brideshead revisited. And then Jim sounds the alarm. And then we go into ass kicking mode. Yeah, death death mode. Right. Yeah, right. West's death, where he gets like smashed through the car and you know pulled out the window, right. is a particularly you know visceral thing. But Jim shoots off the chains that are restraining the soldier who is already yes. zombified, and this is like one of the things that's kind of like morally complicated and fucked up. And what makes the sequence so exciting is it's not just that Jim himself, as a human, decides to wreak vengeance on all these people. He enlists the the chaotic energy of a fucking zombie to help him just right. eradicate these people. Right. He's just, he's just picking them off one by one in this sequence, which is all scored by this one piece of music that plays on. There's no cuts in the music for this whole sequence is six minutes and the music builds. It's a six minute crescendo until the moment that Selena almost kills Jim. It's like pretty incredible use of music to set mood and tension and stuff. Um, yeah, it's sort of, a cool sort of sub-zombie trope. The Michonne character in The Walking Dead has the thing where she's she has sure. two zombies that the she pets. walks around with. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, like I do, you know, the more, that that was the whole thing with things like The Walking Dead, the deeper you get where it's like, well, we got to keep coming up with stuff. The more you sort of like see those kinds of tropes like getting messed around with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but I do, I do, yeah, it turns my stomach the whole, do you, you know, just put this guy down or do you let him run wild? Uh, and kill everybody. Um, and the sound design in this sequence is also really good because it's an empty, under-furnished house with high ceilings and just like seven people screaming and running from room to room with a lot of like room echo and stuff. It's really, really well done. The sound design is really good in this whole sequence. Uh, this whole movie. Did you guys... Wait, so, David, you saw it in a the theater. Did, Griff, did you see this movie in a the theater? Oh, yeah. Probably. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you did? Yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. Because I remember it being rattling in the theater. Yes, yes. And it was like, look, I uh, I still enjoyed rewatching this movie, but uh, watching this movie on a small screen at home has a very different effect than watching it up on a big screen in a room with Being a lot of people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and just uh, because of the, the muddiness of the images and everything, it's a lot more alarming when they're so large. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I and and just the the silence in in those moments where the music does drop out uh, becomes so much more alarming. 
Um, it, it, they've been playing it a lot at IFC uh, here in New York City as like a midnight movie. And I missed it last weekend it was playing. Um, but yes, no, I saw this in theater. This was, I mean, this came out right at the point where I was starting to get really into zombie movies. So this kind of came out at like a perfect point for me in the bell curve. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. Uh, Sunshine is similar where like I love that movie. I've seen it like 10, 10 12 times. Whoa. Yeah. But uh, I love that movie. It's really one of my favorite movies. Uh, same, 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 same. Century, whatever. Yeah. Um, but in a theater, the sound design in that movie it's is so real. impressive. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. special. Yeah. Uh, and I'd love to see it in a theater again. Maybe we will. Who knows? Maybe. Uh, anyway. Um, so that's basically it. We, 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 28 days later again, we cut to black. And then there's this sort of happy ending in Cumbria in Northern England. Uh, the infected are dying off. They're starving. Uh, and, uh, they are sort of spotted by a fighter jet and they spell out hello, right? It's sort of this surprisingly light ending. It's, and this uh, it's is nice. This is shot on 35 millimeter, right? Like this, just the end sequence is on film. Yeah. They shot it later, I think. Yes. Because someone wasn't available. Alwyn Cookler, who is a wonderful cinematographer who works with Boyle on Sunshine and Steve Jobs and a lot of other cool movies, but he was Lynn Ramsey's cinematographer. He shot it with him. Anyway. So let me ask you a quick, let me ask you a question about this ending. And I know that there are alternate endings that are much darker and keep things on a bleak. Mm-hmm. Right. On a, yeah. I don't like the alternate endings. That all right. Much. Yeah. Is this ending supposed, because this ending in a way for two reasons, I find incredibly ironic. And it reminds me of the irony in, in Dawn of the Dead, which is that the big thing that made that movie so legendary in in addition to establishing the iconography of the of the, shuff, of the shuffling slow moving zombie is the idea that like look at these dumb zombies came back to the mall because it's all they know because they're brain dead just like all you people who like buying shoes but then there's an ironic moment in that movie where the protagonists who were supposed to be so much smarter than the zombies also go crazy in the mall and and go shop have a, have their Ben's fantasy yes. of a shopping spree right now in this movie we find that the real enemies to humanity are not these poor zombies who are infected with a virus that's outside their control, but these military guys who want to rape women in order to start repopulating the world and have something to live for. They want to play house in their huge empty manor in the middle of a field that's surrounded by landmines and tripwires. Right. And that's obviously absurd and evil and, and awful. We have two characters Jim and Hannah, who were both the only children of two parent households, and and by the end of the movie, both of those all their all their parents are dead. We don't know much about Selena's family, but in the final image of this movie, we have recreated the nuclear family with Jim, Selena, and Hannah. Right? Jim and yeah. Hannah, or Jim and Selena, now are kind of the parental proxies for the much younger Hannah, and we see through the back half of the movie, the final third of the movie, Selena looking out for Hannah and feeding her Valium so that she can disassociate while the soldiers are, you know, do their thing. Not only that, not only have they recreated the nuclear family as a symbol of like the future and hope of humanity, then they also get excited when a military fighter jet flies overhead. Have you learned nothing about the nature of the military? Like, and, and that's fine. Like it is, it's a, it's an, as far as happy endings go, it's good enough. But I wonder if we're part of us is supposed to be like, now, hold on a minute. What happened the last time you put your faith in these military bigwigs, right? 
what is interesting to me, I had not seen this film since seeing it in theaters, and I remembered the ending just being uh, the the truck crashing. I remembered it having the most bleak, oblique ending of just the truck crashes and they go through the windshield and the movie's over and it's unresolved. I had completely forgotten this ending. Oh, interesting. I don't know if yeah. I had seen the alternate endings, which I watched uh, for this. This ending, the the theatrical ending, or the, the one we're talking about, is the one that feels... It's the one thing in this movie that does feel like what we were compliment this, complimenting this movie for not doing to a degree. It does feel like this is the one part of the movie that is actually in reaction to what's going on in the culture. I think you're right, Rees, that it feels like this ending sells out the rest of the movie a little bit and goes against it a little bit and feels a little more like the, the kind of earnest late period, the Danny Boyle you were talking about, Sims. But I also think it was just like, at the point this movie's coming out, people need some optimism, right? Yeah. I think it's a little bit that, but I will say, I think this speaks to two things. One, all British people want to do is fucking move to the countryside and hang up their laundry. They're obsessed with hanging up their laundry. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like, you know, paradise to them is not owning a dryer and just hanging up laundry every <laughs> single hour of the day. Yeah. I would like British people would say to me like, oh, but dryers, those things are no good. And I was like, what are you talking? You put the clothes in them. The clothes Incredible. get dry. It's, it's great. Modern <laughs> like, miracle. It's, Maybe the best invention of all time. They're like, no, no, no. What you need to do is put them out in real damp weather. You know, because yeah. like out here, you know, it's constantly wet. Yeah. So I put them outside. Pens? What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> uh, the other thing is the thing you referenced, David, which is that that uniquely British thing of like, you know, we're on this island. We're kind of not part of anything, like, which sort of can sometimes fuel that sort of Euroscepticism that sort of reached fever pitch a few years ago. Mm -hmm. But also, like, it's part of our whole, like, you know, you know, imperial past. But, like, just that idea of, like, what if Britain was this, like, escape from New York style, like, quarantine zone where it's like, yeah, some bad shit went down over there. Luckily, we could lock it down because, you know, it's an island. Right. Like, and, like, it sort of speaks to that. that like, jets are flying over being like, so how are things doing down there? <laughs> Which I do kind of love. Right. Like, yeah, uh, which obviously the sequel gets into, and I think that's that's smart. Like you know, that mm -hmm. is the direction to take it in. It's like, what if England was just a giant quarantine zone? The sequel's um, the one that ends with the shot of the zombies running through the channel, right? Eiffel Tower. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was the Eiffel Tower. Well, they come out of the. They do run through the channel. Oh, and then oh, oh, come oh, out, and you see the, the Eiffel right. Tower. Yeah, that's a right. great ending. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they're so they're so predictable. Right. They go right to the Eiffel. I know, Tower. right? These fucking tourists. <laughs> God, you know, they don't even want to go to the whatever, Bois de Boulogne. Cool. I would, anyway. Wait, where? I want to hear, da I want to hear David yeah. Sims list third-tier yeah. tourist attractions in Paris. The zombies are the too... The Rodin Museum. Okay. Uh, okay. That's yeah. Let's keep Jim going. Jim Morrison's grave. They don't go straight to Jim Morrison's grave, the Lizard King. Yeah. I have done that multiple times. Oh uh, I have gone to, you know, Père Lachaise. Um, are you a fan of the doors? David? David? No. I'm not. Um, I I think that first record, you know, has its place. Like, you know, the, the, the yeah, debut the album. Dumpster. With, with oh! <laughs> <laughs> Kabam! I like, you know, like, break on through to the other side, okay? You know, especially if it's two and a half minutes long and not, you know, 40 right, minutes yeah. long. <laughs> like, um, but uh, no, I'm not really a Doors guy. 
never really... I feel like you had to be there with Jim Morrison, right? A little bit? And maybe not even then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not even then. <laughs> uh, and I also think that, like, that is maybe, like, the most annoying biopic ever made, like... Right, like is that that is that's like the tropiest, silliest. Oh, when he's wearing leather pants and no shirt and and posed as a crucified like, Christ ah! figure for like an hour. Like you're just like, shut up, Jesus Christ! <laughs> I thought you were 27 when you died. How long is this going on for? <laughs> oh, are you talking Sorry, about the movie rude. about the doors? I'm talking about the movie. I'm talking about the. I thought uh, you were talking about Oliver that famous Stone photo of him. I'm sorry. Well, the the photos, the photos, all right. He was it, a handsome it takes man. Two hours you know? off of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> um. Anyway, let's play the box office game. Mm -hmm. Unless there's anything else you guys want to say, because we should wrap up. Um, the movie was well received, I would say. Right? Yeah. You know, got pretty good reviews. Uh, critics pick in the New York Times. Hmm. That's not nothing. No, and it was a, it was a crossover hit, especially for such a low budget. It was a deeply, deeply profitable movie that got boiled back onto people's. Uh, uh, yeah. it, it got them back in the conversation. It was made, yeah, it was made for about 5 million pounds and like grossed like 45 domestic and like another 40 worldwide, you know, internationally, yeah. which like does, it doesn't seem crazy or anything, but it was just like, it was a movie in America that never opened beyond like 1200 theaters. Like, you know, it, yes. it never went super wide. No, and it was like very successful kind of programming in the middle of the summer. Yeah. Right. Uh, and in fact, Griffin, June 27th, 2003, it's opening number four. Okay. Uh, but what's opening number one? It's new this week. It's a silly high octane sequel based on a television show. Uh, Charlie's Angels Full Throttle? Yes. Um, the kind of movie that is like kind of diametric. We don't make them anymore. Yeah, we don't make them that way anymore. Like one of the glossiest movies Reserved, ever. Made. Like ever. kind of austere. <laughs> right. <laughs> Every shot in that movie feels like. You know, McGee was just kind of like, well, they're walking down the hallway. Boring. How do we make that crazy? You know, like, yes. you know, even the most right, transitional establishment shot, like it just all has to be completely wild. Yeah. I think the original working title of that film was Charlie's Angels Vivo official because it just feels like a series of music videos stacked. <laughs> it does. In order. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but yes, yes. No, it's, it's one of the most movies ever made. David, I'm assuming you have not seen... Uh, Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. McCoy's it is the film. only movie I've seen more times than 28 Days Later. I've seen it seven <laughs> times. <we> and <laughs> I've seen go. all the alternate endings. And I think if if you read it in the context of Chris Hedge's masterpiece, War is a Force That Gives <laughs> right, Us Meaning, right, right. you're going to find a lot of interesting subtext in that movie. And Samantha Power is in it, of course. Yes, it yeah. was, uh, you know... Yeah. Our current, uh, yeah, uh, okay. So Charlie's Angels full throttle opening to an underwhelming thirty-seven million dollars. That movie was a bit of a disappointment. Yes, uh, yes, especially hugely inflated budget. Right, and the first movie had done surprisingly well. Now the set, the, the reason this box office game is very interesting, Griffin, is that number two mm. is a film that was number one last week, but has plummeted seventy percent. Uh, since its opening weekend. I believe this is one of my favorite movies ever covered on the podcast. It's an infamous second weekend drop. I believe this is Ang Lee's Hulk. Yes, the worst oh. drop in the history of like blockbusters, basically. At that point Audiences were yeah. like, no, thank you. We didn't enjoy this and we told everyone not to see it. Is yeah. that good? I've heard that's really good. Yes. It is. It's fantastic. I heard it's like if Terrence Malick made a superhero movie. Yep. 
you are going to sort of, it. and there are secret, and it is also one of those movies that is like so infused with post nine eleven Iraq War uh-huh. vibes, uh-huh. even though it was definitely made before the Iraq War. Right. I don't yeah. know if it was made before nine. It wasn't you know like. And like, there's this sequence where the Hulk is like jumping in the desert and he's being like hit with cluster bombs. And I just remember at the time being like, whoa, this is like so, you know, anyway. It's all about, it's all about uh, suppressed trauma. Yeah. I'm going to put that on my list. You're going to love it. Uh, Number three at the box office is uh, an animated film, Griffin. An animated film in 2003. The most successful animated film of all time at this point. Uh, wow, so it's still going really strong. It's Finding Nemo. Finding Nemo. The biggest movie of that year. Which is uh, very delightful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got fish and so on. That movie made me yes. cry. I saw, that in the same, I saw that in the same movie theater where I saw 28 Days Later because there's a sea turtle character, like a stoner sea turtle. And he reminded, he reminded me so vividly of one of my best friends from high school. I started tearing up. Sea turtles live to be 100 years old. That's what Sandy Plankton says. When Crush says how old he is at the end of Finding Nemo, I usually tear up. I'm tearing up thinking about it right now, actually. Uh, I've been, uh, Griffin, uh, the um, opening of Moana when she's a little baby and she, uh, you know, plays in the water and helps the turtle get to the ocean. Yes. Uh, I've been watching that a lot because my daughter likes it. Just that isolated clip. That sequence is a crack to children. (laughs) It's lovely. It's it's a lovely yes. sequence, and it has a little yes. baby in it being cute. But the uh, turtle in it, I'm like, they just fucking stole this from Finding Nemo. He looks exactly the same. It's just the yeah. same damn turtle. They just dropped him in. What's well, Crush? Uh, anyway. They want look. Crush was he wasn't going to hit his SAG health insurance that year, right? Yeah, and he he phoned up Disney and he asked him to throw him a bone. Number four is 28 Days Later. Number five, it's a film we've covered on this podcast. It's a sequel. It's a big hit. It's not well liked, uh, and there will be a new edition in this series. In theaters soon. It just dropped its trailer. Uh, too Fast, Too Furious? Too Fast, Too Furious. Wow. Uh, what did you think of the Fast X trailer, Griffin? Uh, good. I've only seen you liked it, it two times yet, so I'm, I'm barely processed. But uh, okay, okay, okay. yeah, I did like it. I wasn't as amped. The F9 trailer, I you know, we recorded that reaction live. You were I very was edge of my that, seat. Yeah. I still remain a little skeptical of this one. Yeah, this one lacks the hook of that trailer uh, a little bit. This yes. one's just kind of like, you know, family is tested, and you're like, yeah, sure. It's a, <laughs> there's <laughs> some, movies there's some interesting pieces on the board, but I'm not I'm not hooting and hollering yet. Uh, uh, some other movies uh, that year, and that's beautiful summer of 2003. Bruce Almighty, a huge hit uh, mm-hmm. that year. The Italian Job, Mark Wahlberg uh, as Michael Caine. Um, Rugrats Go Wild? Is that the first That's Rugrats? the Wild Thornberry's crossover. Oh, the God, third Rugrats right. Movie. Oh, Jesus, they allowed that in theaters. Okay. Hollywood Homicide, the Josh Hartnett, Harrison Ford team up. Notorious. That, that was a movie? For. It was called Hollywood Homicide? It was a movie. Oh, Hollywood Homicide. It's like, what if there was a, a detective in L.A. who was also a real estate agent? That's literally the premise of that movie. From, from That's the a director movie? of Bull Durham. Yes, like a career yeah, killer a for everyone involved. Is it a comedy? It's a comedy. Oh, okay. yeah, a, a, a crime comedy, right, like an okay. action comedy. Uh, but yeah. it's one of those classic, like Harrison Ford just looks like, get me out of here. I don't know why I'm doing right. 
And Josh Hartnett is like completely at sea, you know, just like, why am I in a movie with Harrison Ford? Breeze, <laughs> uh, we've already done this uh, on mic, so I'll just send you the link and recommend that you do it on your own time for your own enjoyment. But I, I highly recommend uh, you looking at the cast list of Hollywood Homicide, okay. <laughs> both the list of actors and the character names of who they play. Yeah, uh, check it out sometime. Uh, and then number yeah, 10, right. Alex and Emma, Rob Reiner's famed flop. Yeah. Uh, where Luke Wilson has to write a novel or something. He's yeah, like a lot, lot of lot of flops in this top five. A lot of lot of lot, a lot of top ten belly flops from from major artists and three blank check movies in the top yes. ten. Yes, but movies I remember seeing in theaters very profoundly. Charlie's Angels, Hulk, yes. Finding Nemo, Whale Rider is in the top mm-hmm. fifteen, and that's a movie I remember like seeing in theaters and sobbing like you know when she. You know, rides the whale at the end or whatever she yeah, does. She, she does, in fact, ride that whale. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, anyway, um, that's it. David, have we covered everything about 28 Days Later that you wanted to mention? Not even close, but it was a really fun episode. And <laughs> okay. I was really I was really glad to have the opportunity to rewatch this movie. Well, maybe we'll just, you know, we'll just, you know, do another one 28 months later or something. It's a really, really good zombie movie, and it's a really good genre movie, and it it's not as affecting to me now as it was 20 years ago, but it was, uh, in, in a weird way, it was a very comforting movie for mm. me back when it came out because of all the stuff we talked about hours ago. Yeah, well, you felt yeah, hours ago. Okay, so it's time to be done, uh, and uh, that's... Oh, I didn't mean great. that as a critique. I was just like... Well, the- <laughs> it was hours ago, though. You're not Time wrong. has passed, yeah. Um, yes, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, it, it's just that thing where you were like, right, okay, someone someone understands. That's sort of how you yeah. were feeling. Yeah, You're right, not alone. Yeah. Right, you know, like, yeah, okay, okay. People do get I'm what crazy. I'm feeling. Right. But David, you're, you're, uh, what do you want to... You know, obviously, election pop profit makers... That's the podcast I do with my friend about betting on elections, and uh, you can watch Dicktown on Hulu. And the great um, Dicktown, Dicktown's so good, starring starring Griffin Newman and uh, um, uh, guest guest starring, but but it's 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 a Reese Hodgman vehicle. Uh, and as far as the other show, Going Deep with David Reese, I think you can buy it on YouTube. I'm, I'm looking this up right now. Hold on, Going because Deep it's always, with David. It's always Reese. been moving around. Yeah, yeah. We like to keep it moving. It's a fast zombie of a TV show. Keep it moving. Keep it moving. Don't let it, not one place. Yeah. Don't let it throw up blood all over you. I'm seeing both seasons for sale on uh, iTunes, and I would say it's money well spent. Oh, absolutely. That's good to know. Um, Yeah, and Election Profit Makers is a Patreon. You guys do all kinds of cool stuff on that page. I love your Patreon. Oh, thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Uh, th- thank you, for, thank you for coming back. It's always such a special. Yeah, show. it was really nice to see you guys again, Ben. I hope you feel better soon. I'll be thinking of you. Thank you so much. It's nice to see you, David. I let you know. Hit hit me up next time you're in NY. I will. And if any of you guys are ever in LA, I hope you'll let me know. Yeah. Oh, also, wait, well, wait a second. And David, uh, hit me up next time you're in NY. I don't want you to feel like this is a you only Sims you can hit up. Feel free to hit me up the next. I can time. hit you up too. Yeah, feel free, okay. and I'll I'll hit you up the next time I'm in LA. All right, and maybe what, next time you're in you New York, bump hit me up Ben. If you're in LA, yeah. or in if you want to bump, give me a bump. Right. All right, guys, let's be done. Ben will no. bump you. Yeah, we can bump. He's in LA. Thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social media and helping to produce the show. Thank you to Joe Bowen and Pat Reynolds for our artwork. Lee Montgomery of the Great American Novel for our theme song. AJ McKee and Alex Barron for our editing, JJ Birch for our 
research. You can go to blankcheckpod.com for some links to some real nerdy shit, including merch and a Shopify page and Blank Check special features, our Patreon show where we do franchise commentaries, but we also do fun extra bonus stuff such as 28 Weeks Later, which we've talked about in this episode. We could talk about more at length there. Uh, as a reminder, every 10 days, we do a new episode on Patreon, but we also unlock an episode from three years ago. Uh, so if you want to go to patreon.com slash blank check and just sample the 2020 episodes for free, I'm sure they're very normal and no way reflect society collapsing 28 days later. <laughs> I mean, there's that alien resurrection one when Trump had just gotten COVID. That one's always a good listen. Is that the oh. one where Ben falls asleep? Yes, and Ben falls asleep. Yeah, that's a wild ride, that one. It's a real that's, wild ride. That's, yeah. a, that's a real we're, time capsule. We're just vibrating with energy because we're just like, we can't talk about it because what if he dies like, yes. right. in between recording this and releasing it? Right, The most right. exciting day in Twitter history. <laughs> what a Trump day. COVID. We had a Zoom meeting to be like, do we talk about this at all? <laughs> right, what do we do? <laughs> Yeah, just incredible. Uh, oh, but you can listen to that. That'll be unlocked uh, soon. Tune in next week for Millions. Yeah, uh, next week is Millions. Uh, oh, no, no. You know what? Next week is our Blankies episode. Oh, well, good with, thing with you checked. Yes, good thing I checked. Next week is the eighth annual Blankie Award, something like that. And then the week after that, we're back on the boil train with Millions. Charming Euro uh, kids comedy millions. Yes. Um, uh, and uh, thank you again for Dave coming, David. And uh, it's been great. Yeah, it's been wonderful. Uh, and as always, uh, let's hope that Ben has uh, only gotten infected with COVID and not rage. <laughs> yeah.